Hey, super fans, you can join Terry, <laughs> Terry Farrell, the Trek experts in outer space, as we make the trek to the greatest Star Trek locations of all time, along all with time. A, all time, everywhere all time. in the known universe, along with a galactic gaggle of Trek and sci-fi celebrities. Galactic. How much constitutes a gaggle? Well, I don't at, know. At, at least two or three. I have never right. bothered to calculate it. <laughs> well, pre-production has already begun, but you can get some great backer awards and help us get production going this summer by joining us at MakeTheTrek.com today. That's MakeTheTrek.com. And check out everything you can do to support the Trexperts and Terry Farrell as we boldly go to the greatest Trek locations of all time. We may even tell you what God needs with the Starship. The Trexperts are back on the road again as We're our back. glorious... We're, We're back, sorry. baby. We're back. The Inglorious <laughs> Live Tour continues back. in 2024. And we're visiting some great cities near you. So don't miss a chance to get exclusive Trexperts merchandise, autograph posters, and see us moderate conversations with the biggest stars in the Trek universe coming to a galaxy or at least a city near you this year, including Richmond, Virginia, Anaheim, California for WonderCon, Oklahoma City, May 24th through 26th, San Diego, California, for Comic-Con with Mark and Ashley, July 24th to 28th. But if Mark and Ashley aren't your cup of tea, well, at, where are they going to find you, Darren? Well, I'm going to be in Raleigh, North Carolina, July 25th through 28th. Me only. Wow. It's the Trexpert tour. You get Darren all to yourself. Yeah, and right. then we'll all be reuniting, and it feels so good, in San Jose, California, August 18th you know the way? the 18th. I do I know, know the way. way to San Jose. And maybe we'll go up north to look for the nuclear vessels while we're there. Well, and we're bringing it on all home in Columbus, Ohio, December 6th to the 8th. So if you want to know what guests will be joining us and how to get tickets, go to galaxycon.com, comic-con.org, or trexpressplus.com. You'll be glad you did. We'll see you around the galaxy. Join us. Next year. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And this is Ashley Miller. And we are the inglorious Trexperts. And once again, we're thrilled and delighted beyond words, which is not very useful for us. Doesn't happen a lot. But to have Robert Meyer Burnett back with us from the observatory. I, I, what year is it? <laughs> I know, what year is it? Is, it is next year. I think first contact is imminent. <laughs> We're doing this in the future. Oh, my gosh. It, this is another one. And it's misleading because this time it's all different subjects every week. It's like an alphabet soup. But yet it's every individual episode is enormous. What are you talking about? What is he talking about? I'm just about? saying, like, you know, when we do the countdowns, it feels like they go on forever. But this year is every oh. week is a different countdown. Each yeah, one and is those go on forever. They yeah. go on forever, forever and ever. Or as uh, <laughs> as Sonny Steelgrave would say, forever. So um, it's, it's pre toast? pretty crazy. But I bet people are very excited about this week. And we're excited because this week we're doing the 10 most underrated Star Trek episodes of all time. You've heard best of. You may have even heard worst of. But it's very rare people talk about underrated episodes and this goes to something rob burnett was talking about in our very first holiday special 
the idea that they're great episodes, they're meat and potato episodes, and then there's sheer mediocrity and then, you know, just the awful stuff. So how would you describe an underrated episode, Rob? Well, you know, like earlier on, I was talking about those meat and potatoes episodes, but there's also episodes that no one ever really talks about at all. Even one of my favorite meat and potatoes episodes, Taste of Armageddon, got a photo novel, you know, so somebody liked it. But there's a lot of episodes of Star Trek, and I think one of the reasons this show has the staying power it has is, yeah, we always talk about those classic episodes, but it's the episodes that were always good and thoughtful that made up the bulk of the series that don't get talked about very much. And I think sometimes really terrific Star Trek almost never gets spoken about because it's buried between two classic episodes. But I think the majority, like I've always said, I think 75% of the original series is good to great. Whereas I think Next Generation has a much lower percentage of good to great episodes. Well, keep it but, going. And then Deep Space Nine, what's the percentage there? I think Deep Space Nine has a higher percentage than TNG does. Um, and I think Voyager is about 50-50, <laughs> if that. I mean, Voyager is such a schizophrenic show. But, but you know, Enterprise... Don't stop now, Rob. Keep Enterprise, going. Enterprise is uh, a, a series that is being reexamined. People are rediscovering it. And I have to give shout out to Voyager as well. People are rediscovering Voyager. It was obviously, it was the most streamed series for a while. I think it's because it was probably the least watched amongst even diehard Star Trek fans. I kind of lost interest in it when it was first airing because it seemed so derivative. It was a copy of a copy of a copy. Largely and, because and, it was. It was. <laughs> and I I um, I um ended up enjoying Voyager a lot. Um on, on rewatch, there's a lot of great Voyager episodes. You know, I think it relied too much on goofy uh, tropes sometimes, whether it's time travel or gimmicky stuff. And uh, but other than that, I mean, I think it. I think it has a lot of great episodes. And beyond that, what is there anything beyond <laughs> what? <laughs> One step beyond. I mean, the animated me. series you're talking about, right? Right. Uh, I think the animated series has a lot of great episodes. You know, and um, but then there's episodes like uh, Beyond the Farthest Star. No one ever talks about that, but I love that episode. It's the first so episode of the animated so series. And I liked it. And the the thing is, it's uh, look, we all obviously grow up with the Star Trek that is on at the time. Right. And uh, we all get attached to that. And I think that our ratio of what is great and what is not great is skewed a little bit by our point of view. But, you know, we can always try and take a step back and uh, uh, try and judge this uh, with equality rather than uh, the haze of age. <laughs> well, I think that it's, it's more than that. I think it's about um, the fact that back in the day, these shows were curated for us by, the, by WPIX or whatever. We, were, we were at the mercy of whatever aired. So we watched everything, and often we watched it again and again. So we're exposed to all these different episodes, and our opinions about certain episodes evolved. Now, if you just want to watch Yesterday's Enterprise and Best of Both Worlds over and over again, you can do that because of its ubiquity on streaming or social media. And I think a lot of these episodes that maybe would have gotten more attention in the past um, don't get watched as much. And I think this is sort of our, you know, our, our beckon to people to say, hey, 
maybe there's these episodes that you wouldn't check out normally or you haven't watched in a long time that's worth taking a look at. Again, these aren't the best episodes. These are episodes that are underrated. And it's different than guilty pleasures. Like the Royale is a guilty pleasure. It's not <laughs> underrated. It's a terrible episode. Right. We just enjoy it. It's like Darren's favorite. Get the game. Super fun episode. But it's not a but it's great not, episode. It's not great. No. no. Super great Robin Leffler. Sure. Yes. And when we do <laughs> 10 greatest uh, women in Robin Leffler episodes, we can we can have her on the list. Um, so that's why underrated is very different than best. It's different than worst. It's different than guilty pleasures. It's it's just something that yeah, doesn't get enough overlooked. Love. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. I'm very this. I'm very influenced lately by Siskel and Ebert. We talked about. I, I just finished the book Opposable Thumbs, and I know Darren was listening to it about Siskel and Ebert. And I did this over the holidays. I did a rewatch on YouTube. There's a ton of these old specials, mm-hmm. and they were like, "What if we picked the Oscars and you know overlooked gems and all this stuff?" It wasn't just the weekly review shows. And I, this to me is sort of our Siskel and Ebert episode. It's it's Star Trek's most underrated episodes. You know, it's like something that they would have done. And uh, I, I just, the influence they had at the height of their powers was extraordinary. And it's it's sad to me that they have been so forgotten. Darren, did you finish that book? I haven't finished it yet. I have uh, so many others on my list that I'm picking and choosing. It was so much fun to read and so joyful. And then you get to obviously Gene Siskel's cancer and then shortly yeah. thereafter Ebert, you know, and it just goes from this just delightful, charming book to just so, so sad that in a matter of years they were both gone. Yeah. Yeah. Rob, you'd love this book. You should check it out. Uh, I want to get it. Yeah. There was a wonderful podcast about Cisco and Ebert a couple of years ago. I think it was called uh, Gene and Roger but, uh, from the Ringer Network. But um, I definitely, I think this book is is terrific and I recommend it. I, I like I said on uh, there's this wonderful deep dive I'm doing on YouTube of all these old Siskel and Eberts and it's bring back so many wonderful, wonderful memories of uh, watching those shows. Now the question is, do most of these uh, show up as from at the movies or from sneak previews? All of them. They, they have sneak previews at the movies, and then they have, of course, you know, later when it was uh, you know Gene and Roger, you know, when it right. was. Um, uh, as as, as Siskel, Siskel, and e, Siskel and Ebert, because right. it was the original uh, PBS, then it, it went sneak to previews, Tribune, yeah. and then yep. it went to Buena Vista Television. So, yeah. and then all the series they left in their wake when they would leave, they'd find these awful critics to replace them, and those shows were like unwatchable. Well, wow. like Jeffrey Lyons and and Michael Medved, and uh, and then um, I, I I mean, and then eventually Ben Mankiewicz and Ben Lyons took over, um, right? After Ebert passed away, and it was just awful. Yeah, well, yeah, hard to get that uh, chemistry back. It's it's hard to get the magic chemistry of like the Trexperts for with Rob Burnett, for instance. You know, it's like very few people have that magic chemistry. You ever listen to other podcasts? I bring the Riz, dude. I bring the Riz. <laughs> I mean, I, I've listened to other occasionally on other Star Trek or other podcasts. Most people don't have that chemistry. That's why they're hard to listen to. Really? That's right. It, it is true. You know, you you gotta you gotta you gotta have that uh, that thing, whatever that thing, that thing is. That, 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 quoi. that thing yes. you do. That thing. That thing That's you right. do. Exactly. The wonders. The oneaters. It, it's true. Well, I'm so interested. I'm I'm interested to see what shows show up on this list. 
uh, what uh, series, what Star Trek series show up on these on these lists. Um, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be really interesting as we explore Star Trek's most underrated episodes. And we'll start with our underrated host, Mr. Ashley Edward Miller. All right. So, you know, there have been throughout uh, the, the Star Trek series, well, Next Generation and beyond, uh, that have concerned themselves with shenanigans on the holodeck. And uh, sometimes these episodes work brilliantly. Uh, sometimes they're a little bit forgettable. Sometimes they can even be actively annoying. But every once in a while, there's an episode that breaks the formula and finds a way to tell a holodeck story that has stakes, that's actually fun, and delivers on the promise of the premise. One such episode came in season seven of Deep Space Nine, episode 15, Bada Bing, Bada Bang. Ooh. Starfleet, it's the strip. What is all this? Don't ask me. But Vegas ain't what it used to be. Vic Fontaine's hotel's just been bought by gangsters. When the mob puts the make on the crew's favorite hollow suite. You, Vicky boy. I'm about to take a powder. Now, one bad roll of the dice. If we get rid of Frankie Eyes, everything resets back to the way it was. And their history. We're running out of time. On the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. The problem in the episode is uh, our favorite holodeck character, Vic Fontaine, is about to lose his casino to some, uh, to some rivals. And the only way to save him is for our crew to go into the holodeck and uh, pull off a heist because resetting the holodeck program means resetting Vic Fontaine forever and losing their friends. So whammo, we have stakes. We have a problem. And we actually have um, Ira, Stephen Bear, uh, who who wrote this with, I believe it was with Hans this time, uh, with Hans Baimler, um, in his, really in his strike zone because Ira really loves all the casino stuff. He loves the Vegas stuff. He loves Vic Fontaine. Um, he really knows how to write that uh, that attitude um, and just make things feel like Ocean's Eleven on a space station in a holodeck. And uh, one of my very favorite things about it, one of the most delightful things about this episode that really makes it stick, and it makes all of the Vic Fontaine episodes stick, is the music. And in particular... At the end, Avery Brooks sings, The best is yet to come. It's fantastic. It brings down the house. It's not an episode that people talk about a lot when you talk about Deep Space Nine. We're always talking about the Dominion War and Bajor and Cardassia. And like, it's the angst and it's the darkness. Dead parents. It's, it's all of that, which I love. But this is one of those little bright spots in Deep Space Nine that I think really just, especially coming where it does, towards the end of the show, just as it's about to kick off into the uh, into the the the, uh, the sort of the multi-part finale that closes out the whole thing, um, that gives us just a touch of lightness and um, has, uh, has again has Avery giving that wonderful little send off with that song, and it's just it's so good. Yeah, that's a great point. And I have to say that Deep Space Nine had more um, off-concept shows than any other series. And they're mostly really good, um, whether it be something like Our Man Bashir, you know, which we talked about, which is not underrated. I think people love that episode. But so many episodes where 
Uh, you know, something like Honor Among Thieves, where, you know, O'Brien goes and joins the Orion Syndicate, you know, undercover. It's like there's a bunch of these episodes, you know, not since the original series. Do you really see these kind of offbeat, weird that, you know, sort of off brand type episodes, which are among the best episodes of uh, Deep Space Nine? This is a good one. This is a great pick. Uh, bada, 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 bing, bada, bang. Bada, bada, and, uh, bada bing, bada, boom. And, and, and uh, you know, that character was written by Ira Beer because he loved... You know, old crooners, you know, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, all that kind of Vegas stuff. So it could have easily gone off the you know, off the rails, much like some of the Fringy comedies did. But instead, they really mined Vic Fontaine in a way that deepened our characters and was really a very important and vital part of the show, I would argue, until the very end. I'm not a big fan of the finale, but otherwise, just a really successful character. You know, what makes him work, I think, is the same thing that makes Guinan work when she is actually really working, which is in that particular role, his job is not, it's not to be front and center, it's not to do shtick, his job is to let the other characters bounce off of him, right? Whether he is teaching Odo how to romance Major Kira, right, or he is helping Nog deal with, you know, the the trauma of a horrific injury sustained in battle. He's your bartender, right? He is the guy that you talk to. And because of that, he just projects this incredible empathy. And I think audiences respond to that. Comedy emerges around him, um, but he is, he's not trying to do shtick. He is not Joe Piscopo in The Outrageous Okana. Who is, though? Who really is? Even Joe Piscopo (laughs) isn't. That's a great point, Ashley. Rob, you a fan of Vic Fontaine in particular? Bada bing, bada bang. I love Vic Fontaine. And, you know, obviously, uh, my esteemed colleague Ashley Edward Miller touched on this, but they really took something that could have been not so good. And they really imbued it. Every time Vic Fontaine showed up, there was something worthwhile going on in the episode. And I thought bringing in um, bringing in that character, I mean, a, a holodeck character that that was so different. I mean, obviously very 20th century, but there was just something about it. it. It fit. It really fit because, especially during wartime, you know, it did have that Casablanca feel to it. So it was, it, it really worked, I thought. And um, I really liked him. Yeah. Jimmy Darren. I was waiting for the TJ Hooker uh, Holosuite recreation. It was not to be, Cherie. Uh, okay, great pick to start us off. Uh, Darren comes yes. to us with number nine. Number nine comes to us from uh, uh, the uh, lovely TV series Star Trek The Next Generation. Um and uh, it's the closest we ever got to uh, Jim Henson's Star Trek Babies. Uh, because uh, this is the episode uh, Rascals. A transporter malfunction transforms the crew into children. Are you here to relieve me of duty? I am still Jean-Luc Picard. And a powerless young captain is about to lose his ship to hostile aliens. Computer, deactivate all command functions. Authorization, Riker Omega-3. We have secured the bridge. Script of command, can Picard stop a savage attack? I will execute every child on this ship. On Star Trek, the next generation. Uh, from uh, the... Seventh uh, season. Six, sixth season. 
Six? I thought it was seventh. It's, uh, it's number six. seven in the sixth season. Ah. Uh, and uh, coincidentally, it was uh, directed by Adam Nimoy, his first time uh, uh, at the helm. And uh, this was uh, a, an interesting episode and uh, much overlooked because its premise is kind of wacky. But it's, uh, it's, not, uh, uh, it's not the first time Star Trek sort of uh, took this uh, idea and ran with it. Of course, on the animated show, uh, all the bridge crew is, are changed into uh, toddlers um, but to, uh, you know, an arguable end. But uh, Rascals is fun because the characters, although being, uh, you know, younger in age, they are still... Uh, coherent enough to present their actual characters, and I think it's uh, it's a testament not only to the directing but the acting of the uh, guest stars uh, that they really capture the uh, the adult actors uh, in their portrayal, and it's uh, a lot of fun to see them uh, dealing with each other, uh, particularly the young Picard and the young Guinan. Uh, they uh, they have a uh, a relationship that uh, stretches over years and years, and even in the uh, the younger people's portrayal of them, you can really feel that, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, the uh, the plot is you know relatively meaningless. It's just the point that okay, we have these characters in children form, and now let's watch them for forty eight minutes, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It is. It's sweet. I think the thing I like most about that episode is the is the kid who plays Picard, and who I think is the same kid who plays. He was so very gentle. Uh, who figured out how to do the Picard maneuver, right? With his, uh, with his uniform tunic, and just right. does it. It's terrific. <laughs> yeah, it is an episode that like could have easily been dismissed as goofy. You know, I'm actually amazed that, and it has um, been. Rick Rick Berman, you know, would go for this because we know he anything that reeked of kitsch or goofy, like he he he, you know, he would perceive as being like the original series. We don't do that on the show, right? But uh, I think that you know, Rascals is really fun, and like you said, it's anchored by um, these really terrific performances from these kids, and that, that's not an easy task playing Patrick and playing Michelle and playing Whoopi. Yeah. You know, and uh, and they really pull it off very effectively, and um, it's 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 just it's 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 a lot of fun, and it's not necessarily just played for comedy, even though there is a fair amount of comedy in it. There is some really serious, you know, drama there as well, and uh, it's easy to say, oh, this is just some stupid episode, but I mean, I think there's so many episodes uh, around it, like masks. And some right. of the other shows that are, you know, re- that truly are uh, absurd. Yeah, it's not the stupid episode, but it's a stupid episode among sure. many. <laughs> right. Yes, <laughs> this is true. Indeed. Indeed. Okay, that was Rascals at number nine from The Next Generation. Uh, that brings us to Rotmire Burnett and number eight. Well, you know, I was thinking about subbing this out, but I, uh, uh, on second thought after the talks we've had previously this uh, uh, on these lists. I had to go with this one. This is a really weird... Okay, this is a two-part episode of Voyager that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, and it aired consecutively on one night, which was kind of odd, too. And, you know, it has Nazis in it. <laughs> and, and, and there's good episodes with Nazis, like Patterns of Force, 
in the original series. There's bad episodes with Nazis, like Stormfront. This, I think, uses Nazis in a very kind of a clever way. And I, I didn't see it coming. This is from season four of Voyager, uh, The Killing Game. Half the crew is under lock and key. The rest are fighting for their lives on the holodeck. It's not whether you live. I will hunt down and kill every member of your crew. Or die. You are resilient, prey. It's how you play. We're on Earth during the Second World War. The Killing Game. This is not a game. Prepare for a two-hour Star Trek Voyager event. All new March 4th on UPN. Uh, it's a two-parter, and it doesn't get talked about enough. And uh, the hydrogen come back. Hirogen? Pardon me, did I say the hydrogen? Hirogen. The hydrogen come back. And the, the Hirogen, the hunters, um, the Hirogen have taken over the Voyager. And they have a leader. A leader basically wants to, I guess he wants to show his people something new. And uh, what they've done is they basically turned the Voyager into one giant holodeck. And they're basically reenacting World War II. And the Hirogen are the Nazis. I mean, it's 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 pretty wacky. So they set but, up the laser tag uh, game. Well, yeah, I mean, but you've got Janeway and Tuvok are are uh, are like part of the French Resistance, and then Seven of Nine. Speaking of Vic Fontaine, is a lounge singer who joined the underground. Very very reminiscent of um, of uh, Inglorious Bastards, you know, and and they don't know who they are. And of course, uh, Doctor and the Doctor and Harry Kimmer are trying to figure out what's going on. They don't really understand what's going on, and it really harks back to old, um, you know, World War II movies. And there's battle sequences that are pretty rad, and um, uh, it it it's I it's a goofy episode, but it's a big two part lavish episode. And uh, I love World War II movies, so I loved it. And uh, the Hirogen are, are 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 great villains, and they look good in Nazi garb. Because as we all know, no one is a better villain than Nazis. And even when they have alien Number heads, one on our list, space Nazis. Even on when, our and list. and it, they literally decided to play space Nazis. So, uh, and you know, no one ever talks about this episode really. I never, I never, I never hear it talked about, but it's a big episode. I mean, when they were making this episode, they clearly thought, you know, you're going to get a double shot of Voyager tonight. And well, I think it gets <laughs> overshadowed by Year of Hell, obviously, which is the big two-parter that preceded it that people, you know, uh, consider, you know, some of Voyager's best episodes. Sure. And the killing game is so off concept and so bizarre. Yeah, it's um, so, it's so but, wacky. you know, I, I, you know, I think part of it is, you know, it's really when you're doing a space show and there are not a lot of places you can go film and you got to build. It's like when you go to World War II, it's a blessing because you can go to the Universal Backlot, right? You can, you, you, chances are you have a storage uh, facility full of um, Nazi uniforms from movies. You have a bunch of Nazi, uh, you know, props from World War II movies sitting in, uh, 
uh, you know, uh, props and uh, the costume warehouse. So you you have all these resources that you don't have to spend money on. Obviously, going to Universal is expensive, um, but it gives you great production value as opposed to being stuck on these you know, tiny little sets that you can afford to build for a show that isn't a bottle show. So, you know, in that sense, it kind of was an interesting decision. And you may think, oh, my God, why are we spending all our money doing a a World War II story on Voyager? It seems like the two would not go together. And yet, you know, it's a fairly diverting, entertaining, you know, episode. And again, off concept seems to be the recurring theme of these underrated episodes. It's not a traditional Voyager episode by any means. No, but it is a lot of fun to watch. And, you know, it's pulp sci-fi. It, 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 it's, it's, it's like they could... It's not a particularly great Star Trek episode, but it's fun. Yeah. And as you said, it was interesting because rather than air it as a two-parter, they aired it as two parts... Which was uh, which was a big deal at the time, back to back on U- on UPN, and yeah. I think it did okay for them, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, you know, it was, ratings were going down, and then the Killing Game came, and they made it into an event, and it kind of did you know a little better for them. Yeah, but but an interesting, bizarre installment, and I think there are fair, there are a fair amount of Voyagers that we would probably put on our underrated episode list that maybe don't get you know, a ton of attention. Um, you know, we featured some on our best list. I mean, like Living Witness, which I don't consider underrated. I think that people get that that's a really great episode. Oh, yeah. You know, Timeless is actually a really good episode. I don't consider it underrated. So again, some of these you won't find on the list because they don't fit our definition of underrated. That's right. And Bride of Chaotica, obviously, which we 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 highlighted as one of our favorites. Right, which is not underrated. Right. No. Exactly. At least not in our book. No. So, uh, great. Well, that's a great pick, Rob. And, and that brings us to number seven. And we're back with Ashley Edward Miller to find out what our number seven most underrated Star Trek episode is. You know, sometimes a, uh, a simple tailor is just a simple tailor. And sometimes he turns out to be a whole lot more. In the 22nd episode of the second season of Deep Space Nine, um, we learn a lot of very disturbing things about Dr. Bashir's friend, Garrick, played by the brilliant Andy Robinson. Garrick? Leave me alone. I don't think that would be a good idea right now. Your blood chemistry is severely imbalanced. You need to rest. Don't touch me. Just calm down. Oh, I don't want to calm down, Doctor. I've been calm long enough. Look at this place. It's pathetic to think that this is what my life has been reduced to. This sterile shell, this prison. Take it easy, Garak. Look, you're obviously experiencing some side effects from the deactivation of the implant. Ridiculous. I feel more clear-headed than I have in the past two years. Two years. What a waste these past two years have been. There was a time, Doctor. Oh, there was a time when I was a power. The protege of Anabrantain himself. Do you have any idea what that means? I'm afraid I don't. No, you don't, do you? You don't know much of anything. Tain was the Obsidian Order. Not even the Central Command dared challenge him. And I was his right hand. My future was limitless. 
until I threw it away. You mean when you had that shuttle shot down to stop those prisoners from escaping? I stopped them. I only wish that I had stopped them. You didn't. No, Doctor. My disgrace is worse than that. Unimaginably worse. What could you have possibly done worse than that? I let them go. And uh, the premise of this episode and the thing that makes it superlative uh, is Andy's performance, um, portraying a Garrick who is slowly going mad because there is an implant in his brain. The implant was planted there by the Obsidian Order, uh, the Cardassian Intelligence Directive, and uh, it was designed to help him survive and make it through torture. The problem has become that Garrick has been using it over and over and over again continuously to survive the pain, the torture of being forced to live among humans. That's kind of how Rob feels when he's watching uh, Discovery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, since Dr. Bashir off on a, on a uh, quest to figure out what the hell is going on with him, he meets the amazing um, character in Auburn Tain, um, played by Paul duly uh and uh we figure out that uh that again there's a lot more to garrick than we thought and it ends with i think one of my very favorite uh lines from star trek and i'm paraphrasing when when bashir asks uh garrick if anything you know he said was true uh garrick says every story is true especially the lies um which didn't make our best quotes list but could have easily been number 11. Easily. It's just, the thing is, and it's 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 half like how well it's written, it is half how well it's delivered. By the way, written by uh, my, my good friend, sometimes collaborator, godfather to my eldest child, fellow Dungeons & Dragons player, Robert Ewitt Wolf. Uh, oh, and former boss. Uh, first boss. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just really, it's a really well done little stage play and again, it's one of those episodes we don't talk about a lot because it is so character-focused. Um, and it came at a time before people had really discovered, I think, how great this show was becoming um, and how great it was going to be. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a guest star. It's Andy Robinson who steals the show. And it's just absolutely worth every moment of your valuable time. Do your kids ever go call up Bart Wolf and say, uh, be my friend, Godfather? Yeah, yeah, they do. And then he's like, yeah, but you know what? You never invite me over for, you know. (laughs) It's just like, yeah, okay. (laughs) But that's the wire. Andy, man, Andrew Robinson, he brings it in this episode. He is badass. He is so good. And it's so funny. I mean, it's just like, like he, he was great as Scorpio in Dirty Harry guy couldn't get arrested for years right because he was yep. so typecast playing scorpio then he oh, comes he and he's great he was really in, creepy. Um, he's creepy again in hellraiser yeah but you know look we all know and love hellraiser but they, 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 this is a new it was a new world movie the, the the big mainstream world doesn't know what the what the hell a hellraiser is so he gets cast by ira in past prologue i think it was that second episode of deep space nine and oh my god he's so great and then they have the foresight to say, okay, we can do more with this guy. And seven years of just great Garrick episodes. But what a great concept that he has this device in his head. And at first, you know, Bashir can't figure out, you know, what is causing these headaches. 
And then when he finds out that it's, you know, causing, you know, affecting the pleasure centers of his brain and the, the whole concept of this, that, you know, spies would have this implanted like a cyanide capsule instead. And, and, uh, and then, you know, when he just goes off on Bashir, um, you know, because he just wants to die at that point, you know, just the way he shot, you know, and, and obviously Alexander Sadig is terrific in this as well. But, uh, you know, when, when Garrett goes off on him, uh, in that third act, it's just terrific. And I think this is a great pick for underrated episodes because, um, it really is not an episode a lot of people talk about. And, you know, I think when we talk about great, uh, duets between two actors in Deep Space Nine, we're usually talking about duet. We're talking about Nana and Harris Eulen in that wonderful episode duet, Man in the Glass Booth. Yeah. Um, I think we talk about progress, her, Nana and Brian Keith, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we don't often talk about uh, The Wire. And, um, it, you know, I think you've mentioned Hard Times another a couple of times on the show, which could have easily been in this slot. But you've mentioned it many times, yeah. and I don't think uh, so. But the wire is something that we've talked about a lot less, and I'm glad to see it here at number seven. You know, I, before we go on, I want to say like one thing, one little shout out here, because I think that the, um, you know, this this episode is really emblematic of something that I think was very particular to Robert. Um, I would argue that he may have been the best. Uh, hard science fiction writer who worked on modern Star Trek because he wasn't doing wacky, crazy, hey, I've got an insane idea and isn't that weird? He but he's not a wacky, and crazy guy. Like Ron. Right. He had like a concept that was like, here's a science fiction idea that you can get your head around and here's what it means for the characters. And he takes it and attacks it very simply. And I think The Wire is just a, a perfect expression of, of what a Robert Wolf story really is. But see, that's what was so good about that writer's room, that each person kind of had their specialty. And yep. like Robert had the hard sci-fi. You know, when you look at Ira, he has this love of old classic movies, which infuses, you know, thematically a lot of his work, right? Um, it's it's like when he talks about, you know, he'll, he'll do something like... Um, Oh God, what's the Peck and Paw film? Ride the High Country. Like he won't literally knock off Ride the High Country, but the themes of that he'll put into Deep Space Nine, yep. you know, and then Ron Moore, you know, he comes from this military background, you know, that's why he, and he was so good at writing for the Klingons, but also this sort of military. I know Robert does too, but you know, Ron really wore that on his sleeve. And then yep. you have somebody like Renee, who is a playwright who, it's all about character, 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 you know? And it was just so interesting that they all kind of had their, their, their world. And, you know, Hans and Hans Beamler had his own thing. Peter Allen Fields, you know, kind of had this kind of classic, uh, classic narrative kind of having written in television, you know, been in the business for, you know, this is kind of the end of his career towards the end of his career. You know, yep. he'd been around for a long time. And so he brought something else to the room. So it's just interesting because I think they all brought something very distinct, you know, uh, that made Deep Space Nine what it was. And yeah, I, I, I've, I would agree with you that I think that Robert, Robert Wolf's, you know, excellent, you know, he was the biggest sci-fi fan of them. He yep. read a lot of sci-fi literature. He, he, he knew his science fiction. You know, I don't think there was anybody else in that room who, who was like the, the, you know, hardcore lit sci-fi guy that he was. No, not at all. He he definitely thinks in those terms and still does to this day. 
Yeah, yeah. You a fan of that episode, Rob? I am. It's tremendous. Really, really good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, you know, it's so it's so funny because if you really look at the breadth of Deep Space Nine, especially, um, you know, the first three seasons, it was kind of struggling to find what it was going to be. You know, season two, they really leaned into Bajoran politics. And and while there's some interesting stuff there, I didn't think it was particularly compelling. Mm. And then in season three, it, you know, they gave him the Defiant. It felt a little bit like season two of Buck Rogers in the 25th century. A little bit, yeah. Um, but it, no. and But, but then Mark started, Leonard didn't take his head off. But <laughs> yes. But then it, it started to get... Th season three had a lot of really great, really great episodes. And then... You know, obviously they brought Worf on and the show changed yet again. And I don't I don't really know, Mark, you probably know when the Dominion War arc was really solidified. I mean, obviously we see uh, the Jem'Hadar at the end of season two destroying a Galaxy-class ship. And obviously they were planting all of these seeds. But um, there's a lot of, I think Deep Space Nine, I mean, obviously the original series only ran three seasons, but for a seven-season show... Deep Space Nine probably overall is the strongest of all of the modern Trek shows with all of the episodes that it has. I it think. takes the most risks and it's yeah. the most ambitious for sure. You know, and to answer your question, we had Robert Wolf on a couple of months ago where he talked about the history of the Dominion. And uh, yeah, the, the, it's interesting because they introduced the Dominion in the Jem Hadar at the end of third season, which was then going to lead into the Dominion. But when they decided to bring Worf on, that all changed and it became about the Klingons in the fourth season and the Klingon war. And then so the sort of introduction is the Dominion as the major threat. You sort of got kicked down the road a little bit, uh, but it all worked out. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's great. I mean, the, 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 no show did the geopolitics of the galaxy better. And that's why when I hear people say they want their Star Trek Game of Thrones, they kind of had it with yeah. Deep Space Nine. It was Game of Thrones in that it had, you know, all these different warring factions and, um, it, you know, this large tapestry and this kind of future history. You know, it had a Game of Thrones dynamic. But I don't think that's what they mean when they say we want our Game of right. Thrones. Well, most people don't know when they when you're talking about a development executives, they're always talking about, well, what about the the second season? Well, the reason why, like, you know, you you end up loving that show by the time you get to the second season is the same reason why DS Nine works. It's about the characters, man. It's about their relationships. It's like the pilot of Game of Thrones is really just a comedy of errors about very bad house guests, right? That's that's all it really is. And DS9 is kind of the same way. You can boil these stories down to very human, um, very human stories. They aren't, all the, the geopolitics and all those machinations come down to who these people are and how they relate to each other. But, you know, it's interesting because we talked about this before, I think. Game of Thrones, as most people know who, are, who read up on the show, the first season was so over budget because of the pilot they threw out and then they shot a, a second pilot. Um, that a lot of the episodes came in short. And so as a result, they had to shoot all these two-handers with two people in the throne room having these amazing conversations that were all character because that's all they had the money to shoot. That kind of happened on Star Trek, too. They were short, and then they would go in and shoot, like, Odo and Quark talking or right. you know, these two well, characters talking. 
like the root beer scene, which was, you know, a late ad because the episode was short. And these are some of the best scenes. So when we say it's like Game of Thrones, it actually really is, you know, and, and it's why Game of Thrones ended up being so great. It's why Deep Space Nine ended up being so great. Because if you don't have great characters, you'll never have a great show. Okay, well, that was a great pick. Number seven, The Wire. That brings us to number six on our list of uh, the most underrated Star Trek episodes. And for this, we have a tie. It's two Westerns. It's David Goodman's Enterprise episode, North Star. This is my first officer, T'Pol. She's from a planet called Vulcan. Pleased to meet you. Ma'am. Dr. Flox reports that his patient is doing much better. Good. I thought... We'd bring Mr. McCready. Have your men drop those guns. Let's talk this through, Jennings, Bennings, Franklin, and Pierce. I never was one for talking. Which is, uh, it's not exactly Hodgkin's Law of Planetary Parallel Development, but it's a Western... Uh, with aliens, you can never go wrong with Western horses and aliens. And, uh, well, unless it's cowboys and aliens. And, uh, and then of course, I, I, we, we felt compelled to put this next episode on our underrated list because for those of you who remember in the best of Trek, there was a best of Star Trek and there was a worst of Star Trek. Always, almost always number one. Not Spock's brain on their worst of, of Star Trek was this next episode, Spectre of the Gun. Aliens, you shall be punished. You, Captain Kirk, yours shall be the pattern of your death. <laughs> I'm not Ike Clinton. Well, I'm glad to meet you. Mr. Kirk. You've got until five tonight to get your horse-stealing scurvy crew out of town. The Earps will kill the Clantons at the OK Corral at five o'clock. We are the Clantons. At one minute past five, you'll find a hole in your head right from this gun. Really? <laughs> We're not going to move from this spot. Spectre of the Gun is anything but the worst episode of Star Trek. Uh, Spectre of the Gun. Excuse me, it it definitely says gub. It says gub. Spectre (laughs) of the Gub. I'm pointing a gub at you. (laughs) A gub? What's a gub? Um, uh, Spectre of the Gun is a terrific episode, and it uses its production limitations in a brilliant way. The whole idea that the Malkotians are reading our crew's minds, but they only pieces and and they construct sort of a fragments of a western town which makes it that much creepier and then you have this great jerry fielding score which later he reused for the wild bunch and uh, not literally but it sounds very similar um and this great shootout with the clantons it is one of the spookiest and creepiest episodes of star trek and although the third season of enterprise is a dud where the zindi arc where they attempted to do kind of a serialized, but not really. And then we're going to have these Star Wars aliens that are like the Dominion, but not really. That launched a terrorist attack on Earth, but not really. In the middle of that season, there are occasional gems. One of those gems is North Star. 
And uh, it's an episode where we go to a planet and it's an old Western planet, which, you know, I'm a sucker for. And uh, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. And it, believe it or not, Connor Trenier's Trip Tucker actually has a great line. He said, where did you ride, learn to ride a horse? And he answers, I watched a lot of John Ford Westerns growing up. So there you go. David Goodman continuing the legacy of Lee Cronin, a.k.a. Gene L. Coon, with his North Star, uh, which continued the legacy of Spectre of the Gun, two terribly underrated episodes of Star Trek. Wow. Uh-huh. That's a, that, that snuck up on us, I think. Yeah, it did. Because they're underrated. Well, yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Uh, you know, just for, uh, for people who've listened to us before, uh, specifically who've uh, listened to the... Uh, uh, the space font episode, um, Spectre of the Gun has uh, on the sheriff's sign the only in-universe use of the Star Trek title font. It's just a funny, uh, funny yeah, thing. Yeah, sheriff is in the Star Trek, which we still, which is so interesting. It's very meta. You yeah. know, it's it's Tommy Westfalian. It's like uh, basically how are they reading Kirk's mind, but they're seeing the Star Trek font. Right. So is Star Trek really? Does it exist? Does it exist in it, Kirk's mind? Because yeah. it certainly doesn't exist in Shatner's mind. <laughs> and it's also a good Chekhov episode as well. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, you know. I mean, that's, look. For, that's for a low bar, good. but yes. Yeah. But I mean, you know, look, we, I mean, it's still one of the quotes we quote the most. You know, we're not going to leave here until way after five o'clock. And yeah. then that great, you know, push in and then zoom out and they're at the um you know okay corral yeah yeah it's great and of course uh you know DeForest kelly was in john sturgis's uh, gunfight at okay Mm -hmm. corral as well so there's that connection too um but i'm a big i'm a big fan of westerns and uh and i think i think north star is a lot of fun rob are you how did you feel about that third season of enterprise the zindi arc you know um I liked it. I didn't love it because the, again, the Zindi themselves, really interesting idea. Multiple species um, on the same, you know, developing on the same planet or whatever uh, together. I thought that was fascinating, but it was so, it was too pulp sci-fi for me. You know, it was, it seemed like we were watching a different show other than Star Trek, I really wanted the villains to be much more formidable yeah. than they were. And then there was the the thing with the spheres and the sphere builders and all. It was a little baroque, I think. And it would have been really interesting if uh, I think if the if this is far, silly to say, but if the if the aliens were a little bit more down to earth. Mm. It was, and because the way they portrayed, you know, you had one of the alien species was in the water and they didn't have the budget to pull it off effectively. I mean, it was a, it was really ambitious, but I think the execution left a little to be desired with me. However, I enjoyed it overall. There was enough there to, to chew on that I thought, well, at least there, this was a real, this was a, a, a big swing for them. And I thought it was interesting. I mean, I watched it. it, I was compelled to watch it every week. I was excited to watch it. Other than, say, like, modern Star Trek makes me dread it. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. No, you know, it's interesting because um, 
you know, I think that it, it starts off with, because remember, this is kind of the influence of 9-11. Yeah. But the whole idea that it starts with this terrorist incident where the earth is attacked, Florida is destroyed, which eh, isn't such a bad thing in retrospect. But Florida is destroyed. And so we want revenge. So we send the enterprise after them for revenge. Right. But but they're not really going for revenge. They're going to get intel or something. Uh, it's just it's very not Star Trek. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's I think that's what I really. Yeah. It was not real. It didn't feel like real Star Trek. You know, and it's unfortunate because there are a couple of episodes that season like North Star, but um, also uh, S- Similitude is 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 pretty good. Carpenter Street is interesting, which is a time travel episode uh, where they go back to Lacey Street Studios uh, in Los Angeles. <laughs> um, and there's a terrific episode also where they're dealing with um, an enterprise that's been stuck in the stuck in the expanse for for i think in in for years and yeah. uh and and you know they, they're trying to i mean but that also is kind of you know darkly fatalistic and and uh it's 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 interesting but it just never hangs together they never had a a real um they never broke the season so it, it just lurches around yes and it, it's unfortunate but of course the show rebounds in a big way with season four um, but anyway, but the underrated for sure is uh, North Star and, of course, Spectre of the Gun, uh, Trek Magazine's worst Star Trek episode of all time. But, of <laughs> so course, wrong. that's because they published in the mid-70s. Had they been around today, I'm sure they would revise that list accordingly. <laughs> One can One only help. guess. <laughs> okay. So um, that brings us to number five, and we're back to Robert Meyer Burnett to reveal our number five most underrated Star Trek episode. Uh, I think this is an absolutely banger episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. It's from the fourth season of the show, and it was written by Voyager co-creator Jerry Taylor, and it is full of all kinds of Star Trekian military intrigue, the likes of which I really, really, really enjoy. Um, It starts out, the episode is called The Wounded. A Federation starship on a merciless attack. You have killed nearly 700 people. A Starfleet renegade on the brink of madness. We had to act now. Picard must destroy his fellow officer to stop a war. You must preserve the peace, no matter what the cost. He turns weapons on a Federation starship to protect the enemy? Starfleet Showdown on the next exciting episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And of course, it begins with a Cardassian ship attacking the Enterprise. Now, this is the first appearance of the Cardassians. Mm. Uh, TNG has created a brand new alien race that I think the makeup and the costuming on them is wonderful. They they revised it a little bit for Deep Space Nine, but obviously they made, they made such an impression that they keep coming back. Um, and you obviously keep coming, they keep back. coming back because they were really <laughs> strong. I mean, if if they had created the Cardassians in the first season. Uh, TNG might have been a, a different kind of a show. But these, uh, Mark Alemo, who later played Gold Ducat, uh, plays a captain, a Cardassian captain named Gull Masset. They're yeah. not called captains, they're Gull. Um, and uh, what what is so great about this is they, they chose to focus on Colomini's O'Brien character. And we're getting backstory. He was on a ship 
called The Rutledge, and he served under Captain Ben Maxwell, who's played by the great character actor Bob Gunton. People yeah. might remember him as the uh, as the um, the warden, commandant, the warden of of Shawshank Prison and the Shawshank Redemption. Um, and Bob Gunton has kind of gone rogue in his starship, uh, the Phoenix, and he is attacking Cardassian ships. And the Cardassians are like, what? You know, what are you doing? We, we just have a science station here, and the 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 ships that are that, that are being attacked are just resupplying our science station. And so it's a bit of a cat and mouse game, and they have to hunt Maxwell down. And Maxwell is very strong in his convictions that no, 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 the Cardassians are in fact using this station. It is not a science station; it is a military base, and they are bringing weapons into this part of space. Now, what they were doing here was setting up, obviously, uh, the Cardassians as being, you, you had the Maquis being set up here. I mean, the, the the beginnings of that, because this all played into Star Trek Voyager and, and how that started out. And these guys were, the Cardassians are just great. So, so Picard has to deal with Maxwell and uh, he's kind of horrified that this guy's Maxwell's kind of gone off the range man he's off the reservation going after Cardassian ships and at the same time O'Brien's loyalties are sort of torn between Picard and of course his old captain and he doesn't he wants to believe his old captain and also uh, O'Brien harbors uh, some feelings real strong feelings uh, anti-Cardassian feelings so there's a lot of previous Star Trek episodes that were great um, you know, I'm thinking a little bit of Balance of Terror, uh, Mr. Bailey, uh, not Mr. Bailey, um, um, Mr. Styles in, in Balance yeah. of Terror. There's a little bit of that going on. And so it turns out, and of course, Bob Gunton has to be brought to justice. And then the, the end of the episode, you find out Picard says, you know what, your base, it really uh, it doesn't have much value as a scientific research facility here and the the ships that bob gutton was going after that captain maxwell was going after they um they did have weapons and things in them they weren't supposed to have so and picard can't prove it but he says we're going to be watching you and so they they not only is it a great episode about starfleet loyalty and captain's responsibility and how do we treat enemy combatants or how do we treat an alien race that might be an aggressor race um, and not only do you meet the Cardassians for the first time it has a cryptic ending you know where where they were doing bad things and you do have to I mean obviously his tactics weren't great but 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 Captain Maxwell was right well what's so great about that Rob is that you know Picard who you know remember the first two seasons was doing nothing but surrendering was a very weak character right Suddenly in the third season, you kind of going along and you're thinking, well, he's not taking this Captain Maxwell very seriously. And then you're thinking, boy, Captain Picard, he's being a little naive here, I think. And, yeah. this, you know, and then at the end, when he finally reveals, I know exactly what you're up to. And, you know, ju and just because I stopped him doesn't mean that, you know, you guys are Rebecca Sunnybrook Farm. He didn't quite say that, but oh, uh, cool if he did. But but man, he, he he it's one of the first times in the series you get to see Patrick really be a badass as Picard. 
you know, and not because he's firing phasers or doing anything, you know, or, or, or doing anything militaristic, but he's calling the Cardassians out on their shit and basically saying, we're going to be watching you because we know exactly what you're up to. And it's yep. very, very effective. But it, it's a terrific episode. It's a reason why the third season is so great of uh, Next Generation. But it also but shows you the uh, real failure of uh, the Federation and Starfleet to defend itself against uh, problems like this. And it opens up the uh, the whole uh, war in Deep Space Nine. It's uh, It truly shows how ineffective our heroes are. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that, Darren. I mean, because I think that's right on. Um, in a way, The Wounded is almost the proto-Deep Space Nine episode, Right. It's mm-hmm. it's all the int- the all the intrigue. It's we get the Cardassians. It's so focused on uh, Chief O'Brien and what a revelation Colomini is in this episode. Oh yeah, as great as you know Bob Gunton is, like Colomini just he owns it. Um, and I think this is what got him that job on uh, on Deep Space Nine because he's oh okay yeah of course um, and uh, just the. The, the moral ambiguity of it all, which was something that I think that in the early days of TNG, you wouldn't have seen, right? You would have seen more of the moral certitude. And here, you, know, you have Picard wrestling with some real things. And, uh, you know, it isn't a flashy episode by any means. It's just well told and well acted. Well, there are no good answers, and Picard needs a proportional response. You know, he couldn't start attacking the Cardassians and starting a war over this. So, you know, he basically, you know, it, this is this is not balance of terror. So, it's a very effective, uh, it's a very effective episode, and I think it makes uh, it, it does a world of good for Stewart as uh, as Picard. Uh, he is a captain for a different era. And uh, he he's he's doing he's doing a good job and great guest performances and obviously as you said Calmini uh, the darling of indie cinema at the time uh, who had been relegated to saying um, uh, beam, basically I'm beaming you up now oh the transporter isn't working is now given you know is given something actually meaty to uh, uh, he's uh, like to Jimmy doing if he'd ever had other jobs and well, he I sings mean, <laughs> you know he and he sings and he sings yeah it's it's. It's 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 just you know you just see some of these episodes and look I think we could have picked a lot of episodes from third season. I mean, who watches the Watchers Fourth? is an episode that we put on our top hundred list, right? A couple of years ago when we did our best. So I don't see again that is underrated, but it is borderline underrated, right? I mean, it's not something people talk about that much, and it's probably one of the best episodes of Next Generation ever made. Um, you know, there is a ton of other episodes in the third season, you know, that are underrated. You could say Captain's Holiday is underrated, as goofy as that is. Um, well, it's, but, it's, you know, it's rated number one by Sir Patrick. It certainly is. <laughs> it certainly is. I just want to point out with the wound is fourth season. <laughs> is yeah, it? Oh, I, just, I stand corrected. Yeah. Well, there's so many underrated episodes of the fourth season as well. <laughs> that's know. right. I think it came right after Devil's Due. You right know, there are a lot of episodes of Star Trek. It's that. very hard to remember. <laughs> it's true. It is true. It's getting. I remember when we had, we knew all the episodes. You knew all By the, the you first know. few seconds of the yeah, yeah. teaser. I can name that in two frames. Right. Yep. You know. We now can, I could go. We can still do that. But yeah, well, the original shows. and yeah. most next gen and some deep space. 
Yeah, it's about but where beyond my that, no. expertise, my expertise ends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my jurisdiction ends here. This <laughs> far, <laughs> no farther. It's a little Silverado reference for those It of you sure is. And get it out there in the dark. Um, okay. Well, that was number five, which then brings us to number four and Ashley Edward Miller, who is going to go deep. You know, just to reiterate something about being underrated doesn't mean that it's not as good. In fact, you can have great, truly great episodes that are underrated in the sense that, God damn it, they are just surrounded by so much stuff we forget to talk about them. So, for example... Uh, in the sixth season of Deep Space Nine, I think we, I think that came in at number three on our list of uh, top ten best seasons of uh, of Star Trek. I believe um, you are correct, sir. The uh, the first six episodes just kick that season off in such an amazing way, and of course, the thing that people always think about is the sacrifice of angels. It's the big battle to retake Deep Space Nine. And of course, it's awesome. It's amazing. Who doesn't love it? But lost in all that sometimes uh, is uh, is an episode called Rocks and Shoals. Mm. What are you doing? Following orders. Captain told us to scan the area for fresh water and vegetation. You know precisely what I mean. You're deliberately staying behind me and I want to know why. Does this have anything to do with that unfortunate business between you and me last year? You tied me up and threatened to kill me. There were extenuating circumstances. It happened. So you can either stay in front of me or walk beside me. But I won't turn my back on you again. Cadet, there may be hope for you yet. And Rocks and Shoals is one of those episodes that kind of breaks into the A and the B story, as frankly many of those those uh, first six episodes did, um, following two different threads, following you know the conduct of the war and what's happening uh, on the home front of Deep Space Nine. On the war front, the Defiant and a Jemadar ship both crash on a uh, on a desert planet. They're pitted against each other. Um, the uh, the Jemadar and their Wayun leader have a problem. The Jem'Hadar are running out of Ketracel White, which keeps them in line. And when they run out of it, they will simply go on a killing rampage. There is only one way off the planet, and Starfleet has it. And the Vorta leader of that Jem'Hadar ship makes a deal with Sisko. Uh, and that deal ultimately involves one of the most heart-wrenching uh, moments of physical battle um, that I think has ever been rendered on uh, on Star Trek when the, the Jem'Hadar finally show up for their final confrontation with Starfleet and Cisco knows that they are walking into a trap and they are all going to die. And when he gives them the option to walk away and they will not because of their loyalty and Cisco has to kill them mm-hmm. knowing that he has no other choice. It is. It is such. It, it just kicks you. It's a. It's a victory that doesn't feel like victory. It is a victory that turns in. It turns to ashes in your mouth and in Cisco's mouth. Um, the other thing that's happening on the uh, on the the station itself is Kira is realizing that she has become a collaborator. There is a show stopping moment among show stopping moments where a uh, a Bajoran Vedic. Uh, throws himself 
off the promenade, kills himself, and just shouts, evil must be opposed. Commit suicide in front of everyone, basically to rouse everybody into revolt against the Cardassians, and he does. Um, and it's a it's just a shocking moment. It's um, and I think it's an important moment in Star Trek um, because it it fully acknowledges the existence of evil in Star Trek. It acknowledges you know the the responsibility that we have sometimes to fight it uh, because it demands to be fought. And when you contrast that with the Jem'Hadar, who are not zealots really. They're just soldiers who are controlled. I mean, it's just, it, it is everything I want out of a Deep Space Nine episode. It's great acting. It's great action. Um, it's a very difficult moral quandary. Um, and it is truly shocking things happening, morally shocking things mm. happening um, that, that leave you not knowing how to feel in the best possible way. Mm. Totally agree. And I would say that, one of the other things I love about it is it really, um, thanks to the production values, is a great looking episode. It has scope. They shot on the dry El Mirage Drake, dry lake bed. And so it feels like an alien planet. And um, there's so much scope to that episode, which really helps. It's not just we're not in the cave set the whole time. Yeah. And uh, so I, I love the look of it. You know, I just, I I love the, the chess between... Um, you know the wounded, um, uh, the the wounded Jemadar, not Jemadar, the wounded uh, uh, um, Vorta, and um, of course um, uh, um, Cisco. And it's just it's so much. There's so much to love in this episode. It's a pressure cooker. It has great action. Uh, his great character moments. Um, just just really uh, Deep Space Nine at its very best. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Great, great example. This is for people who maybe are not Deep Space Nine fans. I know that people listen to the show say, oh, you mentioned Deep Space Nine. I've never really seen it. I, maybe I should take a look. You know, this is absolutely, it's, it's late in the run, but it's, it's absolutely worth seeing and, uh, uh, certainly one of its, one of its best. And speaking of, um, uh, its best, uh, number three on our list of Star Trek's most underrated episodes, again, is a very interesting tie. It's, Imposter from Picard season three. Sir, she's moving away from us. Bro, what are you doing? Jean-Luc, it's up to you now. You finished what I started. She's heading for the Intrepid's port in a cell. Bro, don't do this. I'm giving you what you gave me all those years ago. A fighting chance. Bro, I... I do see you. Everything. Forgive me. It's only now. Bro? Mm. Which in, with an episode that no one has ever mentioned in 30 years until Imposter aired, Preemptive Strike. Picard must entrust a former renegade to stop a terrorist plot. Starfleet wants me to infiltrate the Maquis. But when Lieutenant Rowe crosses over to the enemy... We've learned to be cautious of strangers. Her loyalty is put to the test. Basically, I would be leading them into a trap. That's right. Now, will she follow her duty or betray her captain? What's going on? I'm not 
sure where I stand. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Which was the, uh, which it gave imposter its juice. Imposters, it's plural. Imposters, because there's more than one. There's more than one imposter. So it's like, well, the it first becomes, one's called imposter and really Scott directed it becomes, that. Yeah, it becomes, it becomes, right, exactly. This time it's war. So um, this is really interesting because imposters is just a beautiful, it really is a two-hander between a Picard and Michelle, a returning Michelle Forbes as uh, Ensign Rowe, who, again, could be in a ton of our underrated episodes. Ensign Rowe, um, uh, and um, she was in Rascals briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, she she you know was just uh, just terrific in everything she was in. And then she does the the penultimate episode of Next Generation, seventh season, preemptive strike before the great and not underrated all good things. And it's an episode that doesn't you don't really think about it. You 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 know ultimately she betrays and joins the McKee, but and it's a good good little episode. I hadn't watched it literally in three decades, I think, since it aired. And after Imposters, I went back and watched it, like I'm sure a lot of people did, because they're referencing it left and right in Imposters. And I'm like, which one was that? What (laughs) happened? I vaguely remember. And, uh, and, uh, it's a, it's a really good episode, but, but it works even better now in light of Imposters, which may not be the biggest or the most nostalgia or the most um, uh, uh, action-packed or, or heartfelt of um, of the Picard season three, uh, ten episode season, uh, I, I, you know, and there's so many great moments throughout that third season. But Imposters is just uh, when Michelle Forbes shows up and she's at loggerheads with Captain uh, Picard. It is, um, and you can't understand why she's so pissed off at him, and. Uh, the evolution of their relationship and at the very end when she hands him her earring, it just right. lands with such a emotional um, uh, power. And uh, it's a really terrific episode. And I, I, I don't know if Imposters is too recent to truly be underrated, but I know when people talk about Picard now, they're talking about the two uh, episode finale. Right. Which is, you know, terrific, obviously, um, with some big action moments. They're talking about the next generation. They're talking about, um, uh, uh, no, um, uh, no, no way out. What, what's the, what's the, um, Rob, what's help me with this? The, um, the wonderful episode, uh, there's two, you know, 13 seconds or uh, 21 seconds or whatever it is where we find out about. Oh, no um, win scenario. And no win scenario, which right. are all amazing, great episodes. Imposters doesn't get mentioned in the same breath, but it should because it really is an extraordinary episode and perhaps one of the best written episodes of the season as well. Uh, well, I have to say, Mark, when I was watching, I was afforded a very, very early glimpse at this season. Um, uh, and I, I was knocked out by episodes four and five. And I actually, I, I, I episode four, no one scenarios when you think the Titans literally sinking into a nebula and an the, abyss. the the abyss and and you, we see the birth of a new life form, which is a very Star Trekian thing, but it was also a, a Riker tour de force where he is talking about he had to leave Deanna because of the darkness that was consuming him because of the death of his son. They really made the writers really leaned into something that had happened in Picard season one that we learned about, or maybe it was season two. Um, 
no, season one, and they they followed up on that, and it's all about that episode was about Riker rediscovering his reason for living, you know, and, and finding the the awe and wonder that had left him because of the death of his son, and he got it back in the end of that episode. I found that incredibly moving. That whole ending and the score, Barton score, and all of it. But then it was it was episode five this episode five that floored me and it was the scene between Roe and, and Picard. And I, what, what was so amazing about it was I'm like watching this going, I can't believe that I'm actually watching this scene because they were so great in it. You know, it starts out they're they're, they're sizing each other up wondering what's going on. You know, is, right. Starf- or is one of you a changeling? So, and then it turns into this, all these recriminations and, and then basically a, a, a the re- reunion of sorts, a mm-hmm. sort of reconciliation that has been festering for this this wound that had been festering for 30 years. And it's so good. And I'm like, man, this is why I watch Star Trek at its very best. On one hand, you get awe and wonder inspiring somebody to to find their humanity again. And then you see two characters also rediscovering and 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 finding and 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 delving into an old wound that that was still festering and finding something there and right. it was it was just it was fantastic and i i, I remember the, the the individual that afforded me this very early look at the show i turned to this person and i was stunned and i'm like how did you do this man it was it was it was that episode it was i i think i had to stop Watching, I've actually stopped the episode after that conversation between Roe and Picard, and I, I was like, "How'd you do this? How were you able in the in the in the in modern Star Trek in with the with the way it's been? How were you able to pull this off?" And we had like a long hour long conversation. I'm like, "Okay, let's go back to the episode now." <laughs> but it was it was it was a stunning for me. It was absolutely stunning, and I'm like, "I love." I, it was so far beyond Picard seasons one and two for me that I I, I was just knocked out. No, it's a different show. And and here's the thing that's extraordinary too, is that um, people call uh, Picard season three nostalgia bait or whatever whatever that means or this you know uh, what are they? I think there's all these dumb expressions. But the fact of the matter is, you can only tell a story of the script because you know these characters so well. And what it's doing is it's not telling you the story you thought about these characters. Right. You know, honestly, it's like if it was nostalgia bait, they would have been on the Enterprise for another 10 years and they'd still be going on missions. They'd all love each other and nothing would have changed, right? It would have been the same next generation you knew. And this, all the characters have changed dramatically. And this episode starts with with her, at, uh, Ensign Rowe, at Loggerheads. And it's, it's even better when you go back and look at Preemptive Strike and you see... What precipitated this? Because I didn't remember, you know, him, uh, 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 basically Ensign Rowe betraying Picard, you know, betraying Riker, and then having, you know, that last shot where he has to deal with the fact that this woman that he mentored, that he was, you know, his protege that he put his trust in to go on this mission had betrayed him and the Federation. And I can't see that happening any other season than in the seventh season where they knew the show was over and they were willing. It could have happened on Deep Space Nine, but it would have never happened on on Next Gen. Other than when they attempted that dynamic in Star Trek VI 
and it doesn't really come off very well. Right, that doesn't work nearly as well in Star yeah. Trek VI. And th this is a similar beat in a sense, but because, and it's a great point, because we have no, we didn't know Valeris. Maybe if it had been Savic, it would have landed more, right? Uh, but because it's Valeris who we never met, it doesn't really matter to us. Mm -hmm. And and the, the what's great, you just made my point, is that imposters land because 30 years ago, the story they're telling actually happened as an episode, right? And in, and, in uh, quote reality, yes. And they're yeah. still and they're still both aggrieved about it after right. all these years. And just when they're able to bury the hatchet, you know, she dies. And again, um, what it's been suggested by some people, including the actress, that they wish they hadn't died. This is the only ending the show could have had. And anything's oh, she could have beamed off. You know what? We've said this before about Spock. Star Trek, when it dies, people should be dead. And this whole idea that Patrick wanted her to be around at the very end for the coda at the end of the season is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. The, the reason this episode has the power it does is because she sacrifices. She redeems herself. Yeah. She sacrifices herself to save the Enterprise, to save Captain Picard, to save the Federation. Yeah, it's meaningful. It's look, it, it, sometimes characters like people die. And we all extract meaning from these things, whether it's fictional or real, right? That's on us. How much time it takes us to extract that meaning. But in the in the context of drama, the meaning should be extracted in the moment, right? That's how we know that it works. And in this episode, we understand what it means not just when it happens, but before it happens. It's why our hearts are in our throats when we're watching the moment unfold because we know that it is inevitable. And fan wish casting about, it could have been this, it could have been that. No, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but it, it could not have been. It could not have been any of those things. And what elevates a story like this, what elevates that season in particular and makes it not nostalgia bait, is, as you said, Mark, it is about characters who have changed. And this episode in particular is about why they have changed, what has made them change. And most importantly, what it means for them going forward. Right. Right. It's not just looking back. It is taking character history. It is contextualizing it. It is extracting meaning. There's already been a death. There was a death of that relationship. And now they're confronting it. Right. And then it becomes that that actual death mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. Rolaren and a rebirth in a way. Well, the, and the, it the, changes who Picard is moving into the back half of that season. Um, so all of these things are, are very impactful. It's excellent drama. Um, it's not fan service. It's not nostalgia bait. And people who think that are just too stupid to watch. But the thing is, the the task that it accomplishes is very difficult because it starts with uh, the characters in a situation where it feels like truth, right? It feels true that the characters we last saw would be in this situation right now. Yep. And uh, to bring them to the, you know, the final uh, arc of that episode uh, and also have it feel true, like every step along the way was reasonable for those characters to have done, that is the other truth that it needs to do, and it does that well as well. So it is very satisfying because it honors how the characters are. Yeah, very well put. So that brings us to number two, 
as we count down our list of 10 most underrated Star Trek episodes and Darren Docterman. Well, we come back to uh, uh, TOS here uh, with a uh, late entry into the first season. And uh, it is often overlooked for the episode itself. It is usually highlighted for the amazing Kirk speech uh, at the end. Uh, but this one also has a very strange and uh, very science fiction-y story. It's The Taste of Armageddon. Captain's Log, Stardate 3192.5, Planet Eminiar 7. My orders are clear. We must establish diplomatic relations at all cost. You were warned not to come here. Half a million people have just been killed. Oh, duty now. Your duty doesn't include stepping into a disintegrator and disappearing. I'm afraid mine does, Captain. Sir, there's a multi-legged creature crawling on your shoulder. You and your party have been declared war casualties. You will be taken immediately to one of our casualty stations so that your deaths may be recorded. If possible, we shall spare your ship, Captain. But its passengers and crew are already dead. Uh, from the uh the first season and uh it uh it was uh, written by uh Gene Kuhn from a story by Robert Hamner um and it is it it's takes, Hamner time it's Hamner time it it takes place in on a strange planet that we aren't supposed to be at but we have to uh it's a mini R7 and uh it's uh its adversary planet that it is uh, in a close uh, uh, concentrical orbit with is uh, the planet of Vendikar, which uh, I joked is a whole planet of uh, uh, of vending machines. But that's not really what it is. It's uh, the the story is about war and how the dirtiness has been taken out of this war, leaving only the clean uh, elimination of your people bit by bit, uh, which is, uh, you know, a very sort of uh, uh, separated emotions from uh, what should be a horrific thing. And uh, you see the people of uh, Emini R7 stepping into disintegration uh, booths uh, as if it were just, uh, you know, another chore to do that day. And uh, it, it really takes, like Kirk says later, the horrors away from war. And without horrors, there's no incentive to stop war. And that's the point of this episode, is that war needs to be horrific so it can be fought to end war and end conflict like this. Um because it's uh, it's human nature to go to war and uh, that humans have to be able to step away from that uh, mindset and, like Kirk says, say to themselves, I am a killer, but I will not kill today. And it's a great uh, it's a great episode and it has some great uh, character names. I mean, Anon Seven is uh, one of the most 
goofy uh, names I've ever heard, but uh, and everyone has a number after their name. Rhea Three, uh, the lovely uh, Barbara Babcock, um, and uh, it's you know design wise, it's uh, it's many many corridors that we've never seen before. But uh, it also features the development of the Klingon hand weapon that uh, with a simple change of uh, emitter at the front, uh, they take the Emenian weapon, weapons and uh, create the Klingons because they didn't have money. Uh, so you're it's, General uh, Order 24. That's right. You're General Order 24. Uh, you know, lay waste to the entire planet if they don't do what you tell them to. Um, do you think he made that up or, or that was real? I think it's real. I think there are certain circumstances where you would have to have that. I mean, obviously, it's lower on the list than uh, General Order 1. It's 24. It's not 23. It's it's 24, right. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's no uh, General Order 66 uh, that kills all the Jedi. Uh, But, uh, you know, you get in similar trouble. Uh, What do you think, Rob? Was that real? Or, I think it was or, real. or did Kirk make it up? You think no, it was because real. What I think you? there would probably be instances in the that that planets had to be, you know, not necessarily Erected. to destroy life forms or things like that. But there, you know, maybe there was there was some kind of a calamity or a threat that that it, it, you had you had to do it in order to save a greater number of people and needs of the many situation mm. for whatever reason. Interesting. So I think yeah, I, I don't yeah. think you that was not a corbomite maneuver thing. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I got to tell you, we really wrestled with putting this on the list because not because it doesn't belong here, but because we've 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 mentioned this so many times on the podcast. We've shown so much love for this episode. Right. But there's a reason we do. And it continues to be underrated. It's not an episode that anyone talks about other than us. And um, we felt it had to be here because it is such a great premise. This is what the original Star Trek did so very well. It, it took these great allegory, metaphor, premise, and, and, and sci-fi premise that weren't too difficult to wrap your head around and, and made it uniquely Star Trek and made it something, you know, and a real moral dilemma for our characters. And you not only had Kirk wrestling with this on the planet, you had Scotty in orbit not knowing what to do uh, and kind of being a badass and just ignoring that Pop and Jay Fox and taking the Enterprise out of orbit and, um, you know, he, being smart, everyone was smart in this show, you know, yeah. which, which is, which is great. Um, and, uh, it's just a very special episode, but never going to be on top 10 episode 10 list. And a lot of that is because as we've talked about, the production design is kind of McClunky, but, uh, but the ideas aren't, the writing isn't, it's, it's, it's magnificent. Yep. Okay. Well, before we reveal our number one, most underrated Star Trek episode of all time. As we always do, we talk about honorary mentions. Now, honorary mentions are a chance for individual achievement. <laughs> While we, we, we work together <laughs> to come up with these lists, honorary mentions solely is the province of each individual. So um, this is a chance for people to mention episodes maybe that they couldn't get consensus on or just something that they is very true to themselves. So, Rob, start us off with your honorary mention for an underrated Star Trek episode. Uh, this comes from Enterprise, the end near the end of the second season. Uh, it is an episode surprisingly written by Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, who wrote a lot of episodes, but I think this is probably maybe the best episode that they wrote, that I, uh, I think so. Uh, it is an episode called Cogenitor. UBM Wednesday, 
An alien race gives a whole new meaning to close encounters of the third kind. Maybe we can sleep together. They need free to mate. I'm pretty familiar with how it works with two sexes, but... Oh, well, I have pictures. Enterprise. And I... To me, this episode is what modern Star Trek should be doing more of. And this episode begins, I mean, we, the great Andreas Katsoulis, who played Jakar on Babylon 5 and who was Admiral Tomalak or, or Tomalak, the Romulan that we met on Next Generation, comes back and he plays the captain of a Vissian, I think the Vissians. And what ends up happening is the Enterprise is studying a star. And while they're studying the star, they come across a new alien species that also happened to be studying the star. And everything is all hunky-dory. It's kind of a fun first contact story. The Vissians seem like very amiable, nice people. And it's a first contact situation that uh, is uh, going very well. Until Trip notices that there is the, the, a couple that is going to have a, have a child is carrying around this, this third person. A third wheel that they these people treat basically like dirt, and they this person this third wheel doesn't know anything, isn't even acknowledged, and from Trip's perspective, this is horrible. Doesn't know anything. Wasn't this this character that is is not educated, and it turns out that this charming alien race needs a third, a cogenitor, to procreate, and in this society. These these cogenitors are treated like not just second class citizens, like they're not even treated like citizens. They're basically treated as doormats. And so Trip can't believe this and decides to take it upon himself to um, educate this this cogenitor and teach him about the ways of the world, or teach them about the ways of the world and everything that this cogenitor is is missing. But the thing is. Uh, he's warned, like, you can't, you know, you can't do this. And the Vissians are saying, please don't interfere. And uh, nobody interfere. Yeah. And, and, and Archer's like, look, you can't, you can't, what we believe is not what other people believe and what might look terrible to us. We can't judge an alien civilization and tell them what to do with themselves. And it really sets up, even though it's it's on the Enterprise, and but it really shows the dangers. And what ends up happening is, of course, Trip goes against all these things and teaches this character. And when uh, the episode ends, uh, the character is now named Charles, um, wants to stay on board the Enterprise for a political asylum. Charles in charge. And Charles in charge. Uh, but of course, uh, they want him back. And Archer, Trip tries to appeal to Archer and say, look, you can't, you know, you you, you got to let him stay. And Archer's like, no, we, we can't do that. And the Vissians uh, demand that the cogenerator is returned. And the Vissians are even, they're nice. They're like, look, we hope that we can still be friends with all of you. And then at the end of the episode, which is why I find this episode so unforgettable, is the cogenitor, Charles, kills himself, um, delaying the birth of a kid, and it strains relations between the, the, the two species because of the infection of knowledge that Trip Tucker has given to the cogenitor. 
And it is a graphic display of why the prime directive is in place. And the thing is, what the audience, we are tripped the whole time. We're like, of course you have to help this poor, poor soul. And we're with trip. You know, the audience is like, yes, absolutely help this kid. And you think it's going to, it's going to end in a different way. And you think that somehow that this cogenitor is going to, and this alien race might learn. No, no, it doesn't have a good ending. And you realize that, and we are like trip We're we're left slack jawed as doing the right thing turned out to not be, I mean, it might've been from our perspective, but from the Vissian's perspective, it wasn't the right thing to do. And Trip should never have done it. And we realize that, oh my God, our interference led to the death of an individual. And it really leaves you stunned. And I think it's one of the very best episodes of Enterprise and one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek ever. Yeah, it's a great episode, Rob. Uh I think this made our 101 greatest Star Trek episodes. I think this, you know, if we were pairing these things like uh, like fish and wine, I think we could have easily done Cogenitor and Tuvix as a double feature because they both deal with similar ethical issues in a way that's uniquely Star Trek and very yes. effective. So um, both 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 terrific episodes. I think it's a terrific pick. I think it easily could have made our list. If it was a little bit longer, it definitely would have been on there. Great, great episode of Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was Rob's pick, cogenitor from Star Trek Enterprise, and uh, a really a terrific uh, ethical quandary um, when Trip gets involved with uh, a threesome. Uh, okay. So uh, that brings us to Ashley Edward Miller and his honorary mention. You know, um, there have been a lot of freaking time travel episodes in Star Trek across the the series. Some of them, Enterprise, are so obsessed with time travel, they they have their own temporal cold wars. Okay, cool. Um, What there haven't been a lot of are are, are truly great comedies. Um, And there, frankly, weren't a lot of great Ferengi comedies, but there were a few. And there is one episode that combines all three of those things. Time travel, Ferengi, comedy, into, I think, like, one of the coolest, most fun episodes of Star Trek of all time, Deep Space Nine's Little Green Men. In 1947, in a place called Roswell... You can't keep this from the public forever. One event shook the world. Beings from another planet have landed on Earth. My name is Quark. I've got a business proposition for you. Now Quark's playing for profit in Earth's past. I want to go home! Inside of a year, we'll be running this place. On an all-new episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, And the premise is dirt simple. Quark and Nog and Rom are all headed to Earth so Nog can go to Starfleet Academy. And uh, through a mishap, they wind up traveling back to 1947. Uh, where they crash land and they get taken to uh, to Area 51 uh, by the government and Charles Napier from Way to Eden is in it and he's a an Austin Powers general and he's crazy and and Quark tries to you know Marty McFly his way like you know through the scenario like my God how much money could we make by these from these people just by you know by knowing all the things we know from the future it it plays all of those cards so fast and so well. And, you know, uh, all the actors have got such a, a wonderful chemistry and their timing is just spot on. 
Um, it could not, it should not have worked on paper. You know, when I, you see the teaser trailer for it, you don't know, know anything about it. You're thinking, oh, this could really be a disaster, but it's a delight. It's wonderful. Um, and again, it's one of those episodes that is very, um, it's its off concept for Deep Space Nine, right? It's got a smile on its face. The, what I'll add to this is I'll never forget working for Ira on uh, Twilight Zone. And at one point, Ira goes, yeah, you know, one of the things we don't do really well on this show is comedy. And I'm thinking, Ira, what are you talking about? You're funny as shit when you want to be. Um, and point to, to this episode is evidence of it. Yeah, I'm amazed to hear that he thinks he's not funny because he did write some really funny stuff. Little Green Men's a great pick. That's an episode that people don't talk about, and yet it kind of came out in the thick of the X-Files, but it was uniquely Star Trek. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm not a fan of the Frankie episodes. In I love the Frankie in the show, yep, but not when they focused on the Frankie, but um, uh, as, a, as the subject of a, a complete episode. But Little Green Men is the exception. Terrific. It's funny. It's smart. It plays with the whole Area 51 mythology in a really uh, a clever way. It has like this tomorrow is yesterday feel to it, but it's completely mm -hmm. different. And I love it. Easily could have been on our list. Don't you think, Rob? A hundred percent. I mean, plus, you know, it's really I, I like the way uh, it, it, it's it's uh, Armin Shimmerman is great in this episode. Yeah. He's it, it's so it, and and I love the fact that they don't really care less that they're back in time. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> there there's not any any like we should preserve the timeline and not, I mean just their very presence proves yeah. that there's aliens in the in the in the in the universe. And so there's nothing they can really do about polluting the timeline. But I just I've always liked this episode because they just don't care. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. it's Armin Shimmerman is clearly having a ball. Yeah, and Max, look, Max doesn't get enough credit. He, it's not easy to play somebody that stupid. And, and Max also went through a great Believe evolution, going from to be this dopey putz of a Frangie to like the guy who creates the minefield and, uh, you know, saves the, saves the, the and, and, a, and a, re, a rebel leader in, in the, in the final seasons. A terrific arc for, uh, for little Max Gredenchik. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> um, Darren Doctorman, your honorary mention. Well, uh, what do you get when you take aspects from all our yesterdays and uh, Devil's Do and uh, Star Trek V and combine them into a half-hour animated show? You ah, get I knew it. <laughs> the Magics of Magus Two. Great choice! Bravo. I love all these. Bravo. According to your records, your entry here was an accident unlikely to be duplicated. With that in mind, plus all you have said, it seems to us that Megas too is safe. But Lucian must be punished. For his betrayal of his people, he shall be confined in limbo for all eternity to live with only himself. No. To isolate someone like Lucian, that's the same as sentencing him to death. Do you realize who you defend? He has told you his name is Lucian. Would you defend him still if you knew he had another name too? The Rollicker, the Tempter, Lucifer! 
we're not interested in legend. He's a living being, an intelligent life form. That's all we have to know about him. We will not join in harming him. And it is one of the craziest episodes of Star Trek ever. Because it deals with all these things that they tried to do later on and not as well. Uh, mm. You know, the this was uh, uh, originally uh, pitched for the show by a guy named Larry Brody, who uh, uh, pitched the story uh, for the third season of, uh, of TOS. And uh, uh, they, for some reason, didn't go for it. And uh, by the time the animated show had come around, uh, he pitched it again. And by George, they said, okay, let's do this one. His original pitch was that the Enterprise crew meets God. Where have you heard that before? Uh, but, uh, again, the studio, uh, uh, set their, uh, line that shall not be crossed and God is turned into the devil. So we meet the devil. And basically that's what happened. Uh, in this, uh, strange section of space, we meet, uh, a character called Lucian who looks exactly like the devil. He has the goat legs and the horns and the, uh, and the, uh, amazing, uh, uh, mustache and uh, goatee. Uh, but, uh, he is a, a dynamic alien. And it's, it, you know, it also has uh, elements of who mourns for Adonais, uh, in it because, uh, we see that this, this race of adventurers were, uh, you know, worshiped and, and feared in, uh, early man. Uh, and so it's, it's a fascinating story told way too quickly and with not enough, uh, uh, to back it up. You know, Jimmy Dewan does a, as good a job as anyone uh, in voicing Lucian, but you always know it's him. And, uh, it's, uh, it, it lets us down a little bit, but the design of the episode is, is fabulous. Uh, you know, we see people walking around in, uh, basically early American dress like the uh, pilgrims would have worn. And uh, it makes us uh, think of uh, all our yesterdays where Kirk was in the prison being called a witch. Um, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I think it's a little bit over the heads of the kids that were watching at the time. It was a little for me, but uh, I, I got caught up pretty quickly. Well, clearly it made its mark because here it is all these years later, you're still talking about it. Well, that's what happens, you know, 50 years later and, uh, you know, you can't stop talking about the damn cartoon. You're still the devil's advocate. <laughs> I see what you did there. Oh, indeed. Uh, great pick. I got to tell you, all these all these picks for um, honor and mentions are terrific. It shows you what a rich tapestry there is to pull from oh, for these. Well, I don't think that's underrated. <laughs> I, 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 th I think that's an episode that we would acknowledge as one of the classics. That's not, that, that's like, you know, top, if not top 10, certainly top 20, right? I mean, that's not an underrated episode. It's a Capistry. top shelf episode. It's a top, top shelf, shelf episode. It's top gear. Top shelf. <laughs> it's top shelf. Okay. Well, I got to tell you, I, 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 um, I had a tough time with this, obviously, because there are so many underrated episodes of Star Trek. And not surprisingly, I kept finding myself uh, uh, migrating towards an underrated Star Trek show, which was Deep Space Nine. Um, so when, you know, I looked to it, you know, I was like, oh, maybe Children of Time. But, you know, I couldn't pick that because Space 1999 did it better with another time, another place. <laughs> yep. So if Space 1999 did it better, it can't really be on our list. 
Um, the siege of AR-15, which is like they're saving Private Ryan. But again, it's like, I don't know if that's underrated. I mean, that's really a, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a great episode. And, um, and, you know, I also, you know, it's like, even with something like the Homecoming Circle Siege trilogy from season two, I'm like, wow, that's really underrated. Except that they did the same plot for the six-parter, pretty much, that culminated in Sacrifice of Angels. Yeah, go Rob. It's the Siege of AR-5. No, no, this is 15, though. This is the different planet. I was watching a different episode. I think you're thinking of the gun. No, no, I'm, 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 I'm agreeing with you, Rob. I'm, I'm, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to be a stat guy, but no, I, no, you know, no, no. That's okay. That's Captain Kirk's safe number. It's but just, yes, that's, I, a, that's a great episode. That's why only why I wanted a to make great, sure. It's not a great episode because people are going to look episode. at the siege of AR-15 and they're never going to find it. And you don't see, <laughs> you know, Aaron's uh, a nog is going to lose his loses. You know, I mean, his leg. I mean, he. It's, it's so great because it's so. It's so un-Star Trekian. It's so unexpected. I mean, there's so many twists and, you know, and, and, uh, it really is a man on a mission. It's a platoon. It's a World War II episode, not set in World War II, mercifully. And, uh, that's a really special episode. I almost feel like there's a different title for that. Not underrated. It's something else. And I, yeah. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I was saying with Homecoming, the Circle and the Siege, which is great, except the, the plot of them having to evacuate Deep Space Nine and it gets taken over by the Cardassians is done again even better in uh, the seventh, uh, in the sixth season, yeah. culminating in Sacrifice of Angels uh, when they retake Deep Space Nine. Uh, but I do like that three-parter, particularly the first two parts, because um, Frank Langella and Louise yeah. Fletcher are so great. Yep. And uh, again, so many Deep Space Nines. One Little Ship, which is a ridiculous, fantastic uh, voyage kind of plot, but it, it, they execute it so well that you, you you don't mind. It's again, it's not an episode people talk about, but the fact they pulled this off on their budget and it's 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 credible. Where the ship is miniaturized, and uh, Darren's like shaking his head. Uh, but but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not with uh, you on this trip. But good for you. I mean, we've talked about the quickening before. We've talked about Explorers before. All really underrated episodes. Dude, Highlander Two is a terrible movie. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but. Now I ask you all, have you all taken your heart medication? Have you all taken your heart medication? Because oh, I don't want to give anyone a heart attack when I reveal my pick for the uh, for an underrated, uh, not the underrated, and underrated episode of Star Trek. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you'd already picked five. No, yeah. no. I'm about to reveal my pick. Are you ready for my pick? Okay. I'm sitting down. From Star Trek Discovery, it's magic to make the sanest man go bad. Listen, the ship is in danger. We have been caught in a 30-minute time loop. And every second that you doubt me brings us all closer to death. Intruder alert. Shots fired. Want him locked down. Drive overload critical. Wait! Go, go, go! <laughs> Make yourselves at home. I have. The second Harry Mudd episode. It's uh, and if you like cover story, cover music of this is uh, where we need video. What the <laughs> hell, dude? <laughs> Open jaws. We look like a bukkake video. I mean, well, it's compare it to the rest of the show, but it, it takes that cause and effect plot with Harry Harry Mud showing up on what was it called the Discovery and uh, killing uh, uh, and, and in revenge killing the captain over and over again. Uh, it, it's sort of like a Brandon Braga 
episode, but on Discovery. But they um, turned Harry Mudd into a psychopath. Yeah, I know. But you know what? It's like, uh, it's, it's Rain Wilson. He is a psychopath. And it, it's, it's not to make the sanest man go bad. It's mad. make the sanest man go mad. What did I say? Go bad? You said go yeah, bad. The sanest man goes man mad, go on mad. Yes, AR-15 yes. in the third season of the next generation. I got to give him credit for the title. That's a very original series title. It's not, you know, it's not like this crap like the the abyss or the, you know, or, the, you know, the, tra- the, the ship or, uh-huh. you know, one of these boring, you know, uh, titles. It's a good the title. The traitor. <laughs> I'm just saying. I never got they, a feeling that when they had, when they had, when Discovery or when they p- pulled those titles out that they didn't know what, the, I always felt they didn't know where they were from. Yeah, you know? I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. But <laughs> like, I do, do you, think there was an Do you know where that title came from? I do think so. there was an elegance to this that uh, that it lacked in in other cases, but um, but I, I you know I just want to throw that in. We're talking underrated things we would not normally uh, uh, cite as well, episodes. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a first I, I did, on this show. I did tell you to make sure you were taking your heart medication. No, I didn't want to cause anyone a heart attack. No, on I'm, show. I'm not on heart medication, but I, I think I should start now. <laughs> Do you need a tranquilizer? <laughs> no. <I'm good. laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so that, that's that's uh, that's my pick. And yes, of course, that is a terrible depiction of Harry. But no, through no fault of um, of Rain the Wilson. great Rain Wilson. No. It was just not. They didn't get the fact that. You know, uh, you, you know. Look, Roger Carmel was a jewel, and it's very hard to be Roger Carmel. Yeah. But it wasn't written for a Roger Carmel type Harry Mudd. I mean, the ultimately, this should have never been Harry Mudd. It should have been a different character. He should have just but played like the, the same premise. character from Galaxy Quest, the Thermian. And I'm not sure. <laughs> and I'm not sure that Wycliffe Jean will make it into the whatever 23rd century or whenever the show took place. But the Bee Gees might. So oh, I'll, I'll cut him some slack. Yes, because well, how deep is my love? Well, it's, it's not that deep when it comes to the show, but in this, in, in, but I, you know, it's it, we're talking underrated episodes. Little little surprises, a few little things. You surprises know, oh, around the, every corner, but nothing dangerous. You want me to change because I could say necessary no, evil from no, Deep Space no, Nine. No, no, the sound no, of her voice. I, no, I could go no, on, okay, but I won't. I, but <laughs> I won't pretend like this never happened. This is your cloak <laughs> and dagger, my friend. This is this your is cloak, my and, cloak dagger. and dagger, man. Wow. Man, you're a tough audience. You're a tough audience. But I, I think our next pick for number one most underrated episode clearly is an episode we can all agree on. And Rob <laughs> Meyer Burnett, if you could reveal to us what Star Trek's most underrated episode of all time is. Well, this this uh, this is an episode we've been championing for over 25 years. Uh, we first, I think, I first championed it in pages of your magazine, Sci-Fi Universe, Mark. Uh, it. It is a third season Next Generation episode that was written by Michael Bill Wagner, who left us. He died when he was only 44 uh, of brain cancer, but he worked on the early third season of, of Next Gen, worked on a few stories, and then this was his one full teleplay, directed by Les Landau. And it co-stars the great John Anderson, who appeared with Jonathan Frakes on North and South. John Mr. Anderson played... Anderson. Played uh, Frank's father. <laughs> yes. And then the great Anne Haney uh, as Kevin and Rashawn Uxbridge. And this is, of course, the episode The Survivors. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. 
the crew discovers the sole survivors of an alien massacre. The attacking force prepared you for some reason. They're guarding a dark secret. Stop! A mystery that's destroying Troy's brain. A threat that's attacking the Enterprise. Commence rapid fire with all weapons on full. On Star Trek, the next generation. Where Worf's immortal line, uh, nice house, good tea, or is it good tea, nice house, uh, comes from. And this is a really intriguing story. And it the, the A story is that the Enterprise has pulled up to uh, a planet, Delta Rana 4, and there's supposed to be a Federation colony on this planet. And all they find is a devastated landscape and then one area that is seemingly untouched with this kindly old couple living there. And they, you know, they're going to find out what went on. And at the same time, Deanna Troy, the B stories, she's suffering from basically space migraines. And she's down Much for the like count. you all are after I said discovery for honorary. Yeah, I, 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 my head is pounding. I can barely speak. Um, and... So then a, a, an alien ship, a mysterious alien ship starts attacking the Enterprise and all kinds of craziness. And, and, and are these the aliens that destroyed the colony? What is going on? And then, of course, and what's going on with Deanna Troy? And what, what we find out is it's all a lie. There is no Rashawn Uxbridge. And Kevin Uxbridge, played by the great John Anderson, is... An immortal energy being, I always kind of thought that maybe I bet he knew the Organians, but an immortal energy being who was traveling around the universe and he found this colony, this this colony that he loved, and he took human form and he fell in love with Rashawn Uxbridge and they were leading this great life until an alien race called the Husnock show up and kills everybody. Wouldn't that have been cool if he was the last Organian? Like, like it, they it, somehow had... You know, evolved beyond, and you know, he was like the last. And he'd Organian. written a trivia book. Yeah, and what what <laughs> what what he'd been doing is the space migraines were caused because Deanna Troy would have unmasked him, and the alien uh, ship was supposed to drive the Enterprise away. Right. And so this energy being, once the colony was destroyed and Rashawn was destroyed, he wouldn't help the colony because he didn't believe in. He was a total pacifist. So. What happened is after everybody I'd been, rather listen to that music than that stupid flute music from the Light. <laughs> after everyone after everyone had been killed, he decided kind of like Solaris style to recreate his house, recreate his wife and live this idyllic illusion. Wow, Rob just spoiled two things. Yeah. The survivors and Solaris for people who haven't seen them. Uh, <laughs> Good so, job, Rob. Sorry. And then and then the kicker the the, the kicker of this episode though is of course when all of this is revealed and and Picard they're wondering okay well what happened to the Husnock what happened to this alien race and John Anderson reveals this pacifist reveals well you don't understand the scope of my crime I used my powers and I reached out across the stars and I wiped them out all 50 billion of them I destroyed all of the Husnock everywhere do you realize that no one listening to this podcast is remotely surprised like every time we like space nazis where'd they come up with that now they're listening to underrated episodes and they're thinking how are they going to pull, pull a wool over our eyes this time what's going to be their surprising number one not a, not a surprise at all 
every episode of this podcast, we talk about this stupid episode. But you uh, see, it's, it's, it's not stupid. stupid. It's great. The crew I love of the Enterprise. The crew of the Enterprise have would have known what was going on if they would have checked at the, on the back of that alien ship uh, where it had a bumper sticker that says, I break for who's not. Yeah. Or you don't <laughs> yeah, break that, for who's not. That's right. What's your uh, problem, Ashley? My only problem is this. And I love this episode. And it's not really a problem. I'm just being a dick. Um, <laughs> you'd think that's all the job. times that Deanna Troy's powers should have been useful. Right. And nobody ever mentioned it. That like maybe she could have helped out by sensing this thing or that thing, and she probably should have known this or that. Well, she's never helped out before. Why start she's now? She's never helped out before. Now suddenly, Kevin Uxbridge, like you know, he's like, ah oh, man, this otherwise useless character <laughs> might just might blow this for me. That's 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 my issue. I'm I don't think that's I'm really an issue. Because theoretically, she should have been able to sense that he wasn't who he said he was, that he wasn't human. Or, you know, he could yeah. have been a sick bay and it could have gone, boop, 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 boop. It's not supposed to do that. Um, she could have just uh, said, I sense someone very uncomfortable. With their I name that's of their- great satisfaction yeah. and joy. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think this is a pretty flawless episode. I no, I completely agree. I'm just being a dick. I You're just being I, a contrarian. I, it's like it actually uses her correctly. Speaking yeah. of contrarian, instead of um honorary mention for discovery, can I go with booby trap instead? No, you're too late. You have made your no, I, made I can't go with booby trap. Because that you're was done. a good episode. No, you're you know, done. other than the fact that Jordy never can done. get a date. How do you get you're a done. wife? He had no game. Stop. He learned it. He learned game. By talking to I'll tell you another reason how he got a wife. You know. He's an engineer. He had a big tool. He loves oh to change my. things. <laughs> she okay. loves the D. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. Children. Okay, forget Booby Trap is the honorary mention. Because you'll make too booby many. Tra- booby Trap. Okay, we'll go back to the survivors. I know this is not a surprise to anyone who listens to the show on a regular basis, but... It's such a great episode. If for some reason you haven't watched it yet, go watch it. It's great. And I don't even want to say the caveat, well, it's not as great as we tell you because we've talked it up so much. No, it's it's pretty much that great. And it's also got great location work. In Malibu, I know, that, that house is terrific. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's like it opens it up. If they had shot that at Paramount and it was like this little Herb, Herb's, you know, Herman Zimmerman cabin, you know, it's a matte painting. It wouldn't have been nearly as effective as actually being in Malibu shooting that episode. Where Kevin Uxbridge made pizza. Well, and also right. when, um, when, when like Worf gets caught by the, uh, his improvised uh, device, which catches him when he's walking across the lawn. Right? Isn't that what happens? Uh, I think it's Riker. Oh, it's Riker. It's yeah. Riker, right? Worf would never get caught. Well, it's the latest scene of people who But it's such a terrific episode. And I think also it's the guest stars that are great. Um, you know, Don Anderson's said, one of the greatest guest actors they've ever had on Next Gen. Yeah, I mean, as we've said, the biggest problem with that episode is uh, you can't take an alien race called the Hoosnock very seriously. But other That's, than that. Yeah. Well, when they've been, they've, They've, when true genocide was committed against them, you can. But and remember, it's, a, it's the worst, waste na- worst alien name ever. Yeah, and by the yeah. way, that is actually genocide. When you actually destroy an entire race, yeah. that is genocide. That is not, people do not know what the word genocide means. Right, sadly. 
Yeah. But uh, yeah, when you're attempting to wipe out a race because of who they are, and, and um, in this case, it was the Hoosnock, the poor Hoosnock. But they yeah. had it, coming. it sounds like a pair of uh, sensible not, children's shoes. Power of the babe. Sensible shoes. That's right. That's all he wanted was a pair of sensible shoes for his uh, his wife, and they weren't willing to sell them. But uh, and and what a what a great monologue. We've talked about this and before uh, when um, he tells Picard the truth, and you know, um, and 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 John Anderson gives us, and then Picard Patrick Stewart also has a great. I can't begin to. You know, judge you for what you've done. Yeah, you know, you'll have to live with it. It's just, uh, it's just great. It's great. It's a great episode. It, it, I think, epitomizes to us what an underrated Star Trek episode is, doesn't it? I, I think so. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and it, it just, it's unexpected. There's a mystery to it. There's um, on multiple levels, and the mystery really pays off because you don't see it coming at all. Right, and. Um, uh, it's it's amazing, yeah. but it it I, I think I think it could have been helped near the end where you know you see various uh, uh, crew members standing around and say you know what that that makes sense that's why I haven't seen any Hoosnock in a long time. <laughs> well, I don't think the Federation knew anything about the Hoosnock. It was like it's a big galaxy. We've never encountered the Hoosnock before. Yeah. And and now we won't ever again. That's the beauty of it. We'll never meet them unless we go through the Atavacron and <laughs> uh, and 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 visit the Hoosnock when they were still around. Wow. I sense a novel coming on. I'm, I'm sure. Right, a comic book or a novel. I'm sure they were. They must have been in a novel. Let's go to our novel. Hoosnock hustle. I'm going to put them in a novel with the uh, parasite creatures from from. Uh, the second conspiracy? to the last episode of Conspiracy, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That you could say that's an underrated episode too, could you? No, yeah. it's not underrated. It's bad. The first half of it's a great episode. Yeah. It, and then it, it goes the all first half goofy. is great. It's yeah. just I goofy. love that episode. Unreservedly. I, I, I do too. I love that episode. I love that. I love that. Especially, like Rob said, the first half hour where it's all mysterious and conspiratorial and seven days in May. Yeah. Or it becomes scanners. And then it just turns into puppets. Up. And then Picard season three did it better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. It's true. Because Picard season three did do it better. Yeah. Nobody does it better than Picard season three. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Although this I is, wish Picard season three had brought back the crystal entity. The crystalline entity, all the hits. <laughs> the crystal entity is the crystalline entity stripper name. Well, right. it would be cool if they brought back the crystalline entity and it 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 found a it found the error in its ways and decided to it, it appealed to join the Federation, and it or, needed the Federation it, needed a spacefaring. It found you could do it found a buddy a, show or a buddy cop movie with the crystalline entity and the Tin Man ship. They're right. just friends. And they travel around the universe solving crimes. No, I, I want to see John Anderson as, as like Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm. And every time he meets someone he doesn't like, he oh blinks them out of existence. So it's like he goes to the you know the pizza the pizza shop and they only have pineapple pizza, but he wants you know regular pizza. Don't make me erase your entire race. And I'm just gonna get rid of all of you wherever they are. And he just goes from place to place and he gets pissed off at the dry Wouldn't cleaner. Would it be easier for him to destroy all pineapples everywhere? Maybe right. <laughs> I destroyed them all with Billy everywhere Mooney and, and yeah, send right. everybody to the cornfield. Yeah, but this is better because he gets rid of them completely. It's a so it's not just lights. like he's just sending. They're not still hanging around the cornfield. He like they're gone. 
They're not coming back. So like, you know, it's like part, like the people that are really annoying, like at the DMV, like they're just gone. They're gone. They don't, they're not coming back. Yeah. So I think that would be good. The adventures of, uh, of, of the doubt. It'd be, you know, curb your doubt. <laughs> now with the four John John Anderson's no longer with us. <laughs> I know. No, no, look, it's sad because you know, we used to say, Oh my god, all these people from the uh the uh, TOS, the, my the, my people are dying, Senator. And now it's like all these people from next gen are passing away. It's like, ugh, yeah. ugh. <laughs> it's like that's not good. Um it's 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 really sad. We had an interesting conversation, and to his credit, Walter Koenig said uh, when we were talking to him, and he said this on stage, so we're not telling tales out of school. He said, you know, he said if I sat around at home and did nothing, he said I would die. He said I am making a point of living life and being more positive and having more fun and mm-hmm. getting out and engaging with people and not being such a curmudgeon. He says because I don't want to die. He says, and if I just sat at home and was mopey and, and negative, he said, he said, I would be done. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was a really interesting thing. And it's kind of what Shatner says about like, you just need to, you know, that's what Star Trek says, boldly go, have, yeah. you know, engage with people, have fun, uh, go to new places and encounter new civilizations. It's, I, I mean, it's like, it's interesting that, they have discovered the ethos of Star Trek without even knowing it. Right. Yep. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty wild. Um, by the way, Rob, you mentioned, uh, uh, nobody does it better. So it's time for a tangent alert. Did oh, you see that La La Land is putting out Octopussy and Live and Let Die in expanded remastered editions? The soundtracks? Uh, I, I, I did not. How cool is that? That's that's pretty cool. I mean, I like the uh, score for Octopussy. I do too. We and, love and our friends George at La La Martin's Land. Score for uh, Live and Let Die. Yep. They not only saved the great music of Star Trek, as we learned in our greatest Star Trek music of all time episode, but now they are at it again with James Bond, and we we love that. End of uh, tangent. I love oh, it too. Okay. Yeah. So that was our most underrated episodes. Uh, number 10 was Bada Bing, Bada Bang. Number nine was Rascals. With eight, Rob brought us The Killing Game. Number seven, Ashley brought us The Wire. At number six, it was a tie between North Star and Spectre of the Gun. Number five was The Wounded. Number four from Deep Space Nine, Rocks and Shoals. Number three, again, a tie between Imposters from Picard Season 3 and Star Trek Season 7, Next Generation, Preemptive Strike. Coming in at number two, it was A Taste of Armageddon and The Survivors as our number one pick for Star Trek's most underrated episode. Well, that was fascinating. It's, it's hard to believe that this is number nine. This is the end of number nine. We have one more holiday special left this year before we come before to the we end do of another holiday, holiday road. <laughs> talking before about we the holiday, holiday special. Well, that's true. We, the holiday road ends next week with the 10th holiday special. But then we'll be back with our wrap-up where we go over our, our choices. Special? We right. review our holiday specials. And, and now the top uh, 10 lists from the holiday specials. And we'll read your letters yeah. and comments about where we got it right or where you thought we got it wrong and other suggestions for things we might have missed. 
and uh, it should be very, very interesting. Pretty, pretty, say, pretty interesting. Holiday Special Special is my second favorite podcast title we've ever done after uh, 4.30 Movie, Movie of the Week Week. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, can you believe the holidays are over and it's a new year and uh, we're almost done with the holiday specials? I, do you know what? I mean, I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> How long have we been doing this now? How, how many know. years have we been doing this? It's amazing. Five years. Five years. Five years out there. Dealing with unknown podcasts like this. like this. What are you looking forward to in 2024, Rob Burnett? Oh, Dune 2. Hmm. Dune 2. What you? I'm looking what forward to you? Dune 2, you know. And look, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I think that uh, Discovery completely destroyed the whole idea of Section 31, I've never seen a, a, an idea completely botched the way they botched Section 31 on Discovery. That said, if you're going to make a movie about with Michelle Yeoh in Section 31 as Empress Georgiou, I'll watch that. Okay, right. I, 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 I will admit, Good. I watch all Star Trek, and I always go into it, fingers crossed, hope. Rob is what Ashley calls a test pattern Trekkie. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd, I'd, I'd hear the day. I don't even have Paramount Plus anymore, so I wouldn't be able to watch it. But I have Peacock, which shows you how sad that is. Um, Ashley, what are you looking forward to in 2024? Uh, June 2, honestly. Uh, Rob. I'm what about you, Darren? What, what's, what are your hopes and dreams? I'm looking forward to all of our all of our sojourns this year, uh, both at conventions That's and uh, at uh, various locations. Because we're you know we're doing our movie and uh, that's going to be fun. And I'm looking forward to doing that. And, and Darren, time. if I'm not mistaken, you have a brand new podcast with Kirk Thatcher. Well, that's true. Uh, uh, hopefully, it uh, it should have started uh, after the new year. And uh, it's called The Weirded Beardos with uh, Kirk and Darren. And, What's uh, it about? It, you know, it's, it, the great thing is not about anything. It's, it's about, about nothing. It's, it's about, a show about nothing. It's about things that we enjoy that aren't Star Trek or the Muppets. Though, is there anything some, that you enjoy besides Star Trek and the Muppets? No, there is. So, sometimes. <laughs> well, sometimes we'll talk about other things. But uh, it's, it's fun. Kirk and I are, uh, are dear friends and we just hang out. And we spend an hour talking about stuff that's on our minds. So. And Rob, what about you? What, what can we expect on the Burnett network this year? Uh, well, uh, you know, I have a new feature film that we're finishing up that I was a producer on called White Devils. That is interesting, based on um, a Some South people African. call you a white devil. I, I know. Uh, I got that coming up. But what I'm really excited about, that's Trek-related, is the audio drama that I'm doing with Max Allen Collins, who wrote Road to Perdition. And I'm doing an audio drama based on his 19-volume series of detective novels about Nathan Heller, former Chicago PD turned private eye to the stars. And the cool thing about this book series is it begins in the early 30s, and the last book that came out in October, Too Many Bullets, took place in the late 60s. John Frankenheimer is even a character in it. And Nathan Heller is kind of like the zelig of detectives. He ends up getting embroiled in actual historical events that are peripherally tied to cases he's on. And uh, we hired Todd Stashwick, Captain Liam Shaw himself, to play Nathan Heller. And we're Surely actually... Not. 
we're actually going to, yeah, I know, we're actually going to crowdfund because there's a lot of things I didn't anticipate, but we're going to crowdfund it. And I already directed and produced a 12 minute proof of concept that introduces us to the character of Nathan Heller. Uh, he's on the take as many cops were back in the thirties and early thirties. And we are, we recorded a 12 minute uh, proof of concept that'll give you a taste. It's, as I like to say, it's, it's, it's a movie, but without the pictures. And so radio. Yeah, kind of is a, but it's very sophisticated. And I hope if we get the first eight hour story done, that we can have the first, we can have the premiere in a movie theater where we turn off all the lights except the exit signs. And you sit, you <laughs> That's just a great sit, idea. I know, right? You sit in the dark, the pitch black, and we listen to this and, and you'll hear Stashwick's take on the character. And we took him to Chicago and filmed him walking around reminiscing what it was like to be a young actor in Chicago. He took us, took, took us back to his apartment. We went to Second City where we were able to get in and watch him talk to the to the students and give him a pep talk. And it was a lot of fun. And I met him because Terry Metalis introduced us. And um, he's just a great guy. You know, he's he so one of us. He's such an uber One nerd. of us. One of so us. So that's what I got coming up. Well, fantastic. Well, you can check that out on the Burnett Network. And Rob is around daily sharing his opinions about all this stuff in this world we call show. And Darren's new podcast is The Bearded Weirdos. Uh, so, actually, The Weirded Beardos. Oh, look, whatever. Siege, just, of, siege of yeah, AR-15, whatever. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay, The Weirded Beardos. The yeah. Weirded Beardos. And uh, check that out wherever you listen to podcasts. So we'll be back next week with our 10th Holiday special concluding our 2023 holiday specials, our collection of top 10, 10 top 10 lists. May would God you like to know more? Would you souls. like to know what we're doing for our grand finale? I bet you would, I'll but we're not going to tell you. The only way to find out is to tune in. And if you want to uh, join us for our subscriber only, Deck 78, which has been on fire, please visit us at Trexperts Plus. Dot com And, of course, you still have a chance to let us know what you think of these holiday specials by uh, reaching out to us on social at Inglorious Trek, Inglorious Trexperts, or at TrexpertsPlus at gmail.com. And uh, operators are standing by now. So uh, until next week, on behalf of very, very, very special guest Robert Meyer Burnett, Ashley Edward Miller, Darren Dockerman, and myself, a vacationing Mark A. Altman. <laughs> I was going to say, we'll see you at the movies because I've been watching so much Cisco and Ebert. I totally was going there. I was like, and we'll see you at the movies. And save us the aisle seat. No, the, the way we end the show is we say, keep on trucking and gloriously, of course.